The interest is intense, then. It's intense. This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about. By my friend and yours, John Syracuse. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, December 14th, 2012. This is episode number 98 of 100. Feels weird saying that. We would like to say thank you very much to our sponsors today. Hover.com, Mailgun.com, Shopify.com, and Shutterstock.com, where you will find over 20 million stock photos, vectors, illustrations, video clips, and more. Start your search over at Shutterstock and you will find the perfect image for your website or your ad or your publication or any creative project, whatever you're working on. You can choose between image packs, you can get a monthly subscription, whatever it is that fits your need, you will not have to compromise and they don't nickel and dime you for the big files. You just get them one price. You can sign up for a free browse account, go to Shutterstock.com, no credit card needed. When you find the stuff you want to buy, use the code DANSENTME12 and you'll get 30% off any package finally we would like to thank igloo for providing the bandwidth for this month of december igloo is your digital workplace that means you can give updates you can have discussions and share files with your team all in one place sign up and get started check them out igloosoftware.com slash five by five as you have uh, pointed out to me through a series of obscure emails my wii u is on its way to me today. yes i show Should- i show that it's out for delivery right now yeah, it should be delivered today, but it has not yet arrived. So obviously we're not talking about the Wii U today, because okay. even if it did arrive today, I wouldn't have time to talk about it. Right. Uh, and that probably means the next week's show, we're going to talk about the Wii U, right? Probably. Uh, now, the thing is, and I, I did mention having some portion of some show where possibly you would have to ask me questions. Does that mean that it's, you know, if next week is the Wii U and that takes the whole show and, and this week... Uh, if we're not doing it this week and we're not doing it in the last show, which we're not, uh, what does that leave? So maybe I'll try to like squeeze in like a couple questions at the end of this one and then like a couple questions at the end of the next one if the Wii U doesn't go for the whole episode. Sure. And these are my questions. These are not listener questions. These are my questions for you. That's right. Harking back to the old days when you were my guest on the pipeline and I, I interviewed you then. Yeah, that's right. Do you remember that? I do vaguely. <laughs> Vaguely, vaguely. That was episode number 23, entitled John Syracuse. You can add that to the show notes. I'm I don't putting have it in right now. All right. Dan Benjamin talks with John Syracuse about writing, development, technology, and the changing audience for gaming and the future content creation for the web. Yeah, none of those topics ring a bell, but I can imagine what I said. And there were two links, an interview with John Syracuse in the setup, and Fat Bits, John Syracuse Staff News. Staff blog, yeah. Ours got rid of the staff blogs, yeah. more or less, and certainly got rid of the branding for all the URLs still work, or they redirect or whatever. But yeah, and your, your setup work. interview was from July first, two thousand nine. Your main machine is a two by two point eight gigahertz Mac Pro. Can you guess what it is now? Same thing. Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> With eight gigs of RAM, dual optical drives, and NVIDIA GeForce eighty eight. 100 uh, GT video card and 3.5 terabytes of disk space spread over four internal drives. Yeah, all of the specs have gone up. I got more RAM, more hard disk space, but yeah, same machine. Same say eight gigs. Card. Yeah. Four years, almost four years ago, three, four years ago. 
All right. Uh, some follow-up before. This is going to be a grab bag show. So I've got follow-up, and then I've got a bunch of little mini things that could have been follow-up, except they're not, but they're similar sized. All right. So uh, the first bit of follow-up is from David Myers, uh, letting us never let the uh, oh-so-important debate about taping in and taping out die. It continues to live <laughs> through David. Uh, way back when I mentioned taping out versus taping in. I said taping, you know, taping out, where did that term come from? I always imagined it came from something having to do with actual tape, laying down traces for circuits and stuff back in the olden days. And then some people wrote in and said, actually, it's about the magnetic tape that you send to the fab that has the information on it. And it's in this old creaky format or whatever. Well, David says that he suggested this theory to a colleague who's been designing electronics since the 70s. And he says, after he stopped laughing, he assured me that uh, your original theory was definitely correct. That is my original theory about laying down tape. Back in the day, before computers were widely available, all artwork for printed circuit boards were created manually, and the process was called taping out because reels of tape were used to create the tracks on the artwork. The artwork for the chips were originally created the same way, many times larger than the actual chip. They were then photographically reduced to create the final artwork for the chip. The entire process was optical, with no electronic data being generated, so no need for magnetic tapes. Uh, I said some more stuff, and he said at the end, uh, it may well be that the etymology of the phrase has been lost as different generations have changed its definition or repurposed the phrase to match the technology changes to the process. Uh, so I'm glad my old man's imagination about laying out traces of tape and then uh, optically shrinking them was not entirely off base. So thank you, David. Uh, the next one is from Ben Golmer. Uh, it's in reference to a topic we discussed on the Q&A show. Last time, somebody asked, I forget what the question was like, what changes would you make to OS X or something like that? Like, if you were in charge, what, yeah. what changes would you make for the OS? And yeah. one of the things I talked about was bringing yet more of the features that currently only exist in, you know, mainframes and other big kind of computers, or resiliency to failure and the ability to uh, upgrade and replace things without any downtime, which would surely need, it's not just a hardware feature, would surely need some sort of operating system support. Uh, so this paper is, is right up that alley. Uh, it is a paper. Uh, it's in Jeff Foster's home directory. So I don't know. He's the last author listed on the paper. Do we have any people in the chat room? Do you know if, if the last author is the important one in papers or is it the first author? See, I would think the first, right? Yeah, but something. Like top something billing, you want to be, be listed first. Yeah, I'll wait, I'll wait for the chat room to tell me. There's surely some academics lurking in there. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, the paper is in his home directory. It's probably in the home directory of all the authors. But this is the link that... Uh, that uh, Ben Gabby. Oh, A.F. Waller says the last author, last author runs the lab. The last, last author is the chairman. Yeah. I met, I met A.F. Waller when I was out in Atlanta and yeah. uh, we had, uh, we had, you know, hung out and had some drinks and I don't know if, I don't know if I would trust this. He says the first author writes the paper or leads the group. Anyway, the full list of authors is Christopher M. Hayden, Edward K. Smith, Mikhail Denchev, Michael Hicks, and Jeffrey S. Foster. Uh, and these guys, I believe, well, Jeffrey Foster anyway, is at the, uh, University of Maryland College Park. Anyway, the title of the paper is Kitsune. I'm assuming I'm pronouncing it right. K-I-T-S-U-N-E. That looks right. Kitsune, colon, Efficient General Purpose Dynamic Software Updating for C. And it was presented at the OOPSLA conference, which is a great name. O-O-P-S-L-A, Object-Oriented Programming Systems Language and Applications, which is an annual conference put on by the ACM. ACM is Association for Computing Machinery. Uh, and the uh, here's the, the abstract. Or, well, more or less the abstract from paper. Dynamic software updating, abbreviated as DSU, 
systems allow programs to be updated while running, thereby permitting developers to add features and fix bugs without downtime. So basically, you know, say you want to upgrade some application that you have. Currently, it's like, uh, we'll take your old version, move to the trash, and then give you a new version. Usually, we'll make you quit the app, too. Uh, technically, on Mac OS X, you can throw the app in the trash and actually fully delete it, usually, if you know how, if you know how to do so, and put a new version in place. But you're still running the old version, and possibly the old version will be very cranky when it goes to try to read a file from its bundle since you've deleted it, and all sorts of bad things can happen. So, in general, when you upgrade an application on Mac OS X or any you know, regular PC operating system, you have to get rid of it. Uh, and then quit it, and then get the new one installed, and then relaunch that. Well, this lets you take a running program and change it sort of in memory without without quitting the program or, or anything like that. Uh, and this page, this paper introduces Kitsune, a new DSU system for C, whose design has three notable features. So there are many such systems that do this type of thing, where you know, altering a running program to be different without having to exit the program, uh, maintaining uptime. Uh, this particular one has these three attributes. It said. Uh, the first is its updating mechanism updates the whole program, not individual functions. Uh, this mechanism is more flexible than most prior approaches and places no restrictions on data representations allowed or compiler optimizations. Uh, it makes uh, the important aspects of updating explicit in the program text. So you have to like alter the program to let it know like uh, here are the important parts. Right. Uh, and the programmer can write simple specifications to direct Kitsune to generate code that traverses and transforms old version state used by new code. So if, you're, if your thing has some sort of internal in-memory state that doesn't work with the new version of the program, you can write specifications that say, okay, you're going to take this running program with this internal memory state and replace it with this new program with this functionality, and you have to sort of translate the state to a state that works with the, uh, the new version of the program. And they used it as part of this paper to update five popular open-source single and multi-threaded programs and found that few program changes are required to use Kitsune, and it incurs essentially no performance overhead. So this is all weird and academic and uh, obscure, but the upshot is that you can imagine if this technology came to Mac OS X, it would be possible to upgrade programs and the operating system with not, not only without requiring a reboot, but without even requiring you to quit the application to get the new version. Uh, we're still in the age now where half the things that I want to upgrade force me to quit all my browsers, which makes me upset. Mm-hmm. It makes me less upset now that I have an SSD at work because, man, I never realized how much of quitting a browser with a million open windows and relaunching it had to do with disk IO. Like, I guess it's just reading things from the disk cache and stuff like that. And it's almost as if I wish it would just pull from the network instead of reading the disk cache because <laughs> relaunching like Chrome with a million open <laughs> windows happens so much faster when you have an SSD. Is that what you're browsing with Chrome? Uh, I have Safari in my primary browser and, and Chrome is my secondary browser. Mm-hmm. It used to be Safari primary, Firefox secondary, but Chrome has replaced Firefox. But I, I'm running both all day for different purposes and but they both have tons of open windows, and you're like, oh, i got to quit all my browsers. You're always worried that you're going to lose state. Or, and some of them, Chrome is really good about maintaining state, like your history and everything. But like, did I have some form in some windows? I'm not going to remember. And then it just takes forever to quit the browser and relaunch it. But with an SSD, it takes less time. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I hate installing some program, and it's like, oh, by the way, we're going to make you quit your browser. It's like, come on. Like, you're not doing anything browser-related. Oh, we kind of are. We're messing with internet plugins. Or even if it is an internet plugin, like Flash. I didn't like it when Flash would make me quit the browser. It's, you know, but this is several levels above that. No restart. Don't need to quit the apps. We'll patch them in process. Who knows if it's feasible or if it's a good idea. But like things like this happen in mainframes all the time. And the, the things I was thinking about, uh, it's hard to describe this because it's kind of like blue sky, you know, or pie in the sky. Things like, oh, sure, we'd like everything to be magical and wonderful. But the, the technology exists to do a lot of these things to, you know, 
to be resilient against fa- failures, to be able to roll your system back in time selectively to various states. You know, you can imagine if you did like an iOS upgrade and it made your thing slower, if it was really easy to just flip back to the old one without having to like, you know, this would require uh, you know, uh, a file system, a much better file system that can do this type of thing, like a BTRFS or ButterFS that we talked about on the past show. Yeah, Butter. Yes, and many other technologies to sort of make make your system be able to be updated on the like all the things that humans don't like that computers need like it's that's the the human serving the computer like all right well i would don't like to i don't want to restart my entire computer and quit all my programs even if they like restore state or try to restore state it's a pain in my butt but the computer needs me to do it you know and i don't want to quit this application that i'm in the middle of working but i do want to upgrade this other one and the computer makes me do it all those things that the computer makes you do that you wouldn't otherwise do uh those can all go away and should all go away eventually uh, so I put a link to the actual paper. It's a PDF in the show notes, and you can take a look at it if you want. Next bit of follow-up is about the uh, touchy-feely geek culture misogyny thing right. we talked about two shows ago. One of your uh, most epic and most epically received uh, show. That yeah, I, I got a couple extra pieces of hate mail this week. Did They're, you really? No, the hate, the strag- hate mail stragglers are still there. Yeah. Mm. But yes, you're right. Overwhelmingly positive feedback. Um, this came from several people. It was a pointer to a YouTube video by someone named Jay Smooth, whose wow. actual name is John Randolph. Oh, and he's, he's apparently a, uh, Jay Smooth is his DJ name. He is the host of a radio program in New York, WBAI's Underground Railroad. Uh, he also does video blogging, uh, on hiphopmusic.com and Ill Doctrine, which is his YouTube video blog, uh, and this is an older video, and the title of it is How to Tell People They Sound Racist. Uh, and it draws, the link is in the show notes, and it draws the same distinction as we discussed last time between what he calls the what they did conversation and what they are conversation. Uh, and he gives this issue a slightly more adversarial bent than I did on the show, uh, pointing out that even though it feels good to slam somebody with the what they are attack saying, you know, you are racist. It feels good to attack. And that feels like the strongest attack against someone who's doing something like that. <laughs> yeah. It's actually a lot easier for the target of the attack to deflect this kind of thing. Cause I can say you, you can't know what's in my heart, you know, but it's to talk about like motivations and, and thoughts and feelings. And it's much easier for them to defend against you calling what, you know, doing the, what they are thing. Uh, and it's true. You can't know what's in their heart. Like that's, you know, that, that conversation is that they do have an upper hand there. Uh, so it's a much better idea to focus on what the, what they did conversation, which is something concrete. Uh, and even though it feels like it's the wimpier attack, he's saying don't let them off the hook by jumping into the what they are conversation because that's just so easy to deflect and turn into something different. If you if you just focus, you know, and don't let them move the goalposts, you know, and just focus on the what they did conversation, which is concrete, you can actually discuss. It's actually a stronger attack. So this is different than I was saying. You know, don't go to the, the what they are because that that feels like it's you know backing them into a corner. Uh, my wife is here waving a Wii U in my face. So apparently it has arrived. Excellent. And she she unpacked. You're not supposed to unpack it for me. What if I wanted to unpack it? All the popcorn that's in that. All right. All right. You're glad that I unpacked it because I have a huge mess to clean. All right. Well, so I've got the Wii U here, but yes, I can't actually play it. I'll just look at it longingly on on the desk during the podcast. But so it is, it is a black uh, Wii U deluxe. Deluxe digital promotion has a sticker on it. An exclusive offer, yes. And that's you. It's very nice. 
All you right. want to do want us? Would you like to stop the show here, and then you can go and unbox it and play <laughs> no. it, and we can resume and we can record Sunday afternoon with your no, thoughts. No, I, I would not like to do that. All right, I've got a show to do here. All right. Uh, so where was I? Oh yeah. So the J, the J Smooth video. Um, so yeah, I thought that was interesting. That the same the same uh, argument about uh, not to con- not to you know to concentrate more on on the action rather than trying to label the person with a totally different angle on it. Uh, also beneficial to saying like, you know, this is actually, if, if you're interested in uh, attacking someone for something like that, don't, it's, it's to your interest to stay away from the what they are conversation because that one is much harder to win and it's the, you're, you're on shakier ground. Uh, and there's a longer version of this video that other people sent me as well at TEDx Hampshire College. Same guy, Jay Smooth. The title of this talk is uh, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Discussing Race. The the other the YouTube one is very short. It's like 60 seconds long or two minutes long. This one is, is longer kind of TED Talk length. Uh, and in this one, he mentions that he gets feedback uh, of two main kinds about that video, about how do people tell people they're racist. It's been a very popular video and people have been linking it around for a long time. Uh, the first kind of feedback he gets is like positive support, like, you know, great job. I really like your video, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and the second kind of uh, feedback he gets is reports from people who tried the technique and it didn't really help them. <laughs> so, you know, like I watched your video and the next time something like that happened to me, instead of me, you know, trying to have the uh, what they are conversation, I tried to concentrate on what they did. And you know what? It didn't really help. <laughs> uh, and I like this because, you know, this appeals to my uh, sensibilities of this guy's famous for uh, this YouTube video. And he goes and give a longer version of the talk. And the first thing he does is uh, describe what's wrong with this talk and how it, and how it doesn't work in real life. Uh, uh, you should watch it, though, because uh, what he does in the longer talk is he is he flips it around and he talks about how to receive this kind of feedback about yourself. Yeah. And 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 make a positive change based on it. How to you know how to be on the receiving end of it and how to avoid getting defensive, explaining sort of rather than explaining why this doesn't work he's explaining, well, here's how you can imagine why it doesn't work, because imagine if it happened to you, wouldn't your reaction be to get defensive? Uh, and the point he makes uh, about this is that. When you believe that you have to be perfect in order to be good, it makes you strongly averse to accepting any kind of criticism. Uh, it, it kind of it turns the what you did criticism immediately into a what you are condemnation. Mm-hmm. Because, you, because as soon as you say, oh, you did this thing that's bad, if your definition in your head is if you ever do anything that's racist, then you are a racist, then the what you did versus what you are conversation is not really helping because as soon as someone tells you you did that, then you're like, oh, but my personal definition is that if you ever do anything racist, you immediately are one. Therefore, you know, uh, so I, I thought that was clever and interesting. And this Jay Smooth guy looks really smart and awesome. And I like him. Uh, I also got some, some other feedback from people. Was that what was it? The, the what you did versus what you are. Someone someone brought up the, like the idea of a murderer, like how, how you know, concentrating on what you did versus what you are is letting them off easy. Uh, I think Jay Smooth had a good counter to that. But my, my counter would be that like it really depends on what it is you're talking like you can't do a blanket i think people were looking for a blanket rule like what you did versus what you are is a universal rule for life well there's no rules like that very few rules like that uh, except for maybe gravity uh, and <laughs> and it's you have to do it on a case-by-case basis so the re- what it comes down to is do you think the action is redeemable uh you you shouldn't you know to the degree that you're worried about this uh, doing something versus being something debate you know it really depends on do you think anyone who does this, there's no redemption, there's no coming back from it. Once you do this, you are this thing, 
And there's no point in trying to change your future behavior uh, because this label sh should rightfully apply to you always. And a good example is when you call someone a murderer. It's a, I, many people may be of the opinion that once you murder somebody, you are a murderer. Uh, and it's not like, oh, man, don't don't put labels on him, man. Don't call don't call him a murderer because uh, that's going to back him into a corner. You rather just talk about what he did, like that murdering you did was bad. <laughs> Let's talk about that versus calling him a murderer, which, you know, and it could be you decide that action. There's no coming back from that. And that mm -hmm. label is yours forever and tough luck. Right. Uh, I would say that saying something sexist or racist is not, is not the same thing as being a murderer. And you can't apply this blanket rule to in, in either case. Right. Uh, so be, be careful about uh, taking, you know, guidelines or advice from anybody and saying that's kind of, that's one of the, speaking of geek culture, it's definitely a geek thing. Like you, you hear some piece of advice or guideline and you're like, uh, this must be a general principle that applies in all conditions. Otherwise it's completely <laughs> invalid. That's not, that's not how the world works. Like everything is context dependent and it's all fuzzy and gray and, there aren't many, you know, hard and fast rules. Uh, so, yeah, check out that video if you haven't seen it before and if you don't know who Jay Smooth is because he, he seems cool. All right. Uh, there's a comment on asimco.com. Oh. This is my, this is like uh, my version of RSS's Twitter where I find links and I think Horace linked to this himself. He frequently does this. This is a great thing that Horace does, I think. He doesn't just link to his own articles like, hey, I, I wrote something new on asimco. He does that too. Like, here, you know, a new post on my blog, take a look at it. He links to sometimes days later, really good comments, but, you know, specifically anchor links to those comments on his own blog posts. Correct. And I think that is awesome because uh, it's kind of like the blog version of follow up, right? Where his audience has a lot of uh, good, smart things to say. And he not only allows them to post there and participates in the discussion, but he highlights them by saying, check this out, guys. So this one he linked to by William Cox uh, is attached to the article, The New Age of Capital Intensity, which talks about capital expenditures and Apple as usual, and also some other things. Uh, William Cox says, Horace, I just thought you should know that Apple is indeed popping up with all sorts of plans to move things in-house. AMD and Qualcomm both have graphics divisions in Orlando. Yeah, you're old town. Oh, yeah. yeah. And now Apple has its chip specialists from Intrinsity, co-designers with Samsung of the A4 chip, in Orlando setting up shop for a new plant. They're recruiting heavily from their competitors' senior staff. I would look for Apple to abandon PowerVR as the GPU supplier in a couple of years and move everything in-house. So here's a, a case where we were talking about before how, like, uh, you know, if Apple buys a company, it doesn't make a difference if they want all the people to work in Cupertino. Well, here's Apple setting up, uh, you know, Apple employees in, in a shop in Orlando, which just so happens to be next to AMD and Qualcomm, their graphics divisions, right? And actively, you know, trying to get employees who either currently or used to work for AMD and Qualcomm to say, you guys don't have to move. You can keep your house where you are. In fact, we set up a shop right here because if you're, if Apple wants to like, you know, this is basically saying, uh, does Apple, Apple makes its own ASICs uh, CPU, but it's still using a GPU uh, made by somebody else. What if they want to make their own GPU? Well, you got to, you know, hire some good mobile GPU designers. And the best way to do that is to set up some, uh, you know, an office specifically for this purpose right next to two other offices that, that have to do with making mobile GPUs. And of course, they bought Intrinsity a while back, which was also a mobile GPU-related uh, chip-making company. Uh, so this is, a, this is pretty strong evidence, if all this is true from this comment, that Apple really has its eyes on, you know, not relying on other people for hardware. We're going to make our own CPU designs, the A6. We're going to make our own GPU. Uh, maybe they're not going to buy their own fabs, but like, 
reading this and thinking about this and, and seeing how serious they are, because like, that's the only reason, you know, as you can surely attest, that's the only reason you set up a, <laughs> a, a an office in Orlando. That's, that's right. So the, the hub there's no, there's no reason to be there. Trust me. Unless you're an, an Imagineer or something. Mm, even then, even then you want to be in California. Oh, the real, I'm going to get it wrong and kill my cred here, but the real Disney world, that's right. Yeah. Right? Real Disney World is in Florida. The real Disney World is in Florida. I worked there. Did you know that? Yes, I did. I listened to all your shows. Okay. I worked in there. And don't be confused. People will call the Magic Kingdom Disney World. It is not. Disney World is the entire thing that's inclusive of the Magic Kingdom. It includes the Epcot Center. It includes all the resorts. It includes what we used to call MGM Studios. Now is some other thing. (laughs) All of that. That is Disney World. Magic Kingdom is the place with the castle. Right, but it's not Disneyland out in California. Right, which that's is that shadow of the real thing. Yeah, the D- Disneyland. I think you can fit fifty Disneylands in the parking lot for the Magic Kingdom. Yeah. The Magic Kingdom. So that's why you're saying if you're going to be an Imagineer, you want to be yeah, in maybe. Orlando. You don't want to be. in They California. do have a big data center out there. All right, but it's it's not that's not a draw for people. Yeah. So so reading this comment and uh, assuming it's true, my thought was: Is there anything Apple thinks it can't do hardware wise? I guess, you know, we have our own little box that we put Apple in, like, you know, Apple makes computers and they buy their, you know, CPUs from Intel or or IBM or Motorola or whatever. And that box is not the same box that Apple puts itself in because Apple clearly says, you know what, we can make our own CPUs. We'll hire a bunch of people. There's no reason we can't do this. We'll get an ARM license. We won't won't just take someone else's cores and put them together. We're going to make our own CPU called the A6, right? So... That was a box that other people had Apple, in the, but they, you know, said no. We don't. We don't recognize that boundary. And now I'm thinking, like, is there anything, anything related to hardware at all that Apple thinks? Well, we can, you know, make our own cases and maybe make our own CPUs, but we can't do X. Is there anything like that that I think they can't do? Can they, do they think they can make their own hard drives, their own SSDs, their own screens? Their, you know, sure, it's. I think everything is up for grabs now and it's tempting to think of things with a PC mindset, especially people of our age of like certain things you do as the maker of personal computers and stuff and certain things, you know, your part suppliers do. And Apple seems willing when it comes to hardware to say uh, the only reason we would ever let a part supplier do this is if the margins are really low and it's not strategically important for us to do it. Right. The, the reason would never be, oh, well, we don't know how to do that. Oh, we can't do that. Oh, you know, we can't make desktop CPUs. That's not, you know, we're not Intel. Uh, if Apple decides that it's strategically important for them to do that, they're not going to let that, you know, old world definition of what Apple does stop them. And they may let other things stop them, like economics and feasibility and all sorts of other things. But clearly in this case, uh, their eyes seem set on making not only the CPU part, but also the GPU part. Uh, and that's very interesting. Um, now, th- th- I was... Careful to add hardware-wise as a qualifier to that statement, is there anything Apple thinks it can't do? Because clearly there's plenty that Apple can't do cloud service-wise, which is sad. I have a little sad smiley face in my notes next to that. (laughs) Uh, But maybe maybe this hardware machismo can be funneled into Apple finally taking the reins on its server-side operations and, you know, building its own server hardware. Uh, Since, of course, it doesn't doesn't make X-Serves anymore and never really use them that much in its uh, server-side stuff anyway. So maybe... If Apple becomes like, you know, we can do anything. We can, we'll make our own RAM. We'll make our own CPUs. We make our own, you know, there's nothing we can't do with hardware. Hopefully then we'll say like, you know what? We keep buying these, uh, you know, rack mount servers from Dell or 
whoever the heck they're buying them from these days, why don't we make our own ones of those? And maybe parlay that into saying we can make our own server-side infrastructure. You know, we can have the our own equivalent of uh, of EC2 and uh, GFS and and uh, Bigtable and Spanner and MapReduce and all that stuff. Like, why can't we do that too? Uh, basically, this this is my this gets back to another question last show. You know, what would you do if you were in charge of Apple? My small one was new file system. My big one was get their server-side stuffing gear. Uh, the idea is giving Apple level attention to products that will never be in the hands of users because Apple's like, oh, the whole company's focused on making it so that when you go into the store and you buy this, you know, iPad mini or whatever, it's just an amazing, beautiful thing. That's what they care about. You get that thing in your hand. How does it work? How does it feel? Has everything, you know, and then it seems like everything else that's going on back in Apple, like the, their bug tracking tool, which <laughs> the people who do see tend right. not to like, and they're, you know, how everything do internally and what, what do they use for their data center? And it's like, well, that, that doesn't matter. You don't see that when you go into an Apple store, right? But the turnaround has to be, no, you have to also give that amazing Apple attention to detail and level of commitment to making awesome things to the things that will never be touched by a, a customer and if, with the physically touched because even though customers will never be in your data center and will never see all your cool infrastructure and stuff, that stuff does affect the end users, increasingly affects the end users. So even though they don't see all that stuff, when iCloud is flaky and doesn't work right, that totally affects the other users. And, and that's that's the, the philosophical turnaround that Apple needs to get. Not just like, hey, put EdiQ in charge because he makes the trains run on time and we'll make iCloud kind of sort of do what it's supposed to do. It has to be an area of excellence like it is with Google. Like Google stakes their reputation on their operational excellence. They do amazing things in the data center with amazing technology, like they constantly, even though Google's customers don't touch their server center, Google's customers have no idea about all this underlying technology, but they know when something doesn't work or it's flaky. Uh, so that, that's the turnaround that needs to happen there. And I hope Apple's amazing balls when it comes to what they think they can do in hardware, some of that transfer is over. Like maybe it sneaks in the back door with like just the hardware guys going, we're so awesome at making hardware now. Why don't we just make our own servers? It'd be way cheaper. Like, and just sneak in that way making your own service to run other people's stuff, you know, running Windows, Azure, whatever stuff on things that they make or running Oracle on their own servers. And, you know, maybe Oracle wouldn't ever give them support if they tried to run another hardware. But, you know, I'm hoping this will steamroll into them getting religion about the server side. But I don't know what the odds of that are. Uh, and this is a follow-up Q&A. We're almost done with the follow-up here. Okay. It's a question that was asked that didn't make it in the Q&A show, but it got sent in regular feedback, and it's Oracle. You, you have chosen, see, the, I was supposed to pick those questions. It, it was sent way after the show was already recorded. Okay, so you, have, cho regular. you have chosen to receive a question and, and, and answer it despite the fact that you had asked me to. Okay, no, that's cool. It, it'll be fine. You'll right. be okay. All right. Yeah, I, they, and I ask, answer questions and follow up all the time. Sometimes I just answer them by email, but I figured this one was uh, of enough general interest. Maybe I'm wrong. This is from Brent Muir. He says, on Hypercritical 97, you mentioned that you work with, work with Oracle PL SQL. Have you been able to find a decent Mac Oracle query tool? Or he's been trying to find one for a while, but can't find one. That isn't clunky or bloated, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he asked me if I use a GUI SQL query tool, and if so, which one? Uh, so what he's asking about is... Uh, Muir Island? Is that where he's from? M-U-I-R. I don't know. M-U-I-R Island. Maybe. That's a mutant research complex. <laughs> so I've heard... Uh, no, really. I mean, that's... I, that's I believe you. All right. Uh, so this is asking about uh, when you have a database, you need some way to be able to type SQL queries to it and say, here, run this query and show me what the results are. 
And there are lots of different tools to do that. He's asking about a GUI tool uh, where you'd have some little window where you type your SQL query, then you press a little button, and then you'd see the results in some sort of like GUI table view or something like that. And I think the main reason he's asking about this is because Oracle comes with and has come with many years a tool called SQL plus SQL PLUS spelled out that way. That is a command line tool. You, you run SQL plus and you get a little prompt then you type your query and then you hit return and it runs your query and shows you the results. Anybody who's ever used uh, MySQL, Postgres or any, you know, open source database is familiar with this type of tool because they all come with a tool that you, it's usually named after the database. So you type the MySQL command and you get, you can get a prompt and then type SQL queries. And yeah, sure. the, the Postgres one is called PSQL without the G, which I find frustrating. Uh, and we're used to that type of thing. Now, if you haven't used Oracle, what you may not understand about SQL Plus is A, that it's really, really, really old. And B, that it's like seemingly never been updated to be better. And what do I mean by better? Well, this is a command line tool that has no read line support. Uh, nerds know what that means, but what, what it boils down to for people who don't know is that uh, read line is the library that lets you do stuff like hit the up arrow to get your previous command history, use the arrow keys, command A to go to the beginning, command, uh, command control A to go to the beginning, control K to kill lines, like line editing, history and line editing. Then we take for granted, like, who's going to make an interactive command line tool that does not have any support for command history? That seems crazy. And yet, in, in 2012, if you get the latest version of Oracle, I believe, I, we have close to the latest one at work, and run the SQL plus thing that comes with it, and like, and try to do command history and hit the up arrow. You'll see like uh, carrot left square bracket whatever the the command for up arrow. Like it doesn't work. It doesn't it doesn't have uh, you know line editing. And this the defaults are crazy. They're like the defaults made for like a a mainframe terminal from years ago. I don't, I don't know exactly why SQL Plus is so terrible. I'm sure people will get me feedback about the the historical terribleness of SQL Plus and why they can never ever change it because people have SQL Plus scripts that rely on its terribleness. Everything about it's terrible. Command line options, how you connect the connect strings, the the way results are displayed. It is perhaps the worst widely used command line program in the entire world. <laughs> so it's it's very obvious that anyone who you has to use Oracle in this day and age does not want to use SQL Plus. So they're desperate for anything to use instead of SQL Plus. And they're asking about GUI tools. Now Oracle does make a I don't know if it's Oracle. I think it's got to be Oracle's own tool now called uh, SQL Developer, I think it's called. It's a Java thing, so right away it's pretty hideous on Mac OS X, but it is a GUI and it has a, is actually better than SQL+. So my answer to Brent is the GUI tool I use is Oracle's disgusting SQL Developer Java thing. That's what I use. I don't like it, uh, but I use it. Uh, the The other advice I have for for uh, doing stuff is if you don't, if you can't stand the Java thing because it's gross and you can't stand SQL+, there is a command called RL wrap, which you may or may not know about. RL stands for read line. RL wrap is a general purpose command that will take some other command whose whose authors are too uh, too uh, lazy or non-existent uh, because maybe the authors are all dead uh, to add read line support. That's the only reason I can think of either either you are Oracle or this program was written by people who are now not living. Like how does it, how does the command line program not have read line support? Well, see, it will wrap the program so that you're really talking to RL wrap and it gives you command uh, editing and stuff like that. And then it will pass that on to the, to the underlying program. So you can use RL wrap with SQL plus and then make an alias and just run that alias. And it works surprisingly well. Uh, so I put a link to RL wrap in the show notes. It's one of those Unix tools that even a lot of Unix nerds don't know about. And why would you know about it? You would know about it if you ever had to use Oracle because you will very quickly say, there's no way in hell I'm using the SQL plus thing without <laughs> read line support. 
I get to find something and you find an RL wrap. So that was the one question I chose to entertain, perhaps too obscure. Oh, and one final question before we go through follow-up. This is a question that many people asked and continue to ask and will continue to ask. This is a question for you, Dan. Oh. Hypercritical t-shirts. Everyone wants to know. What's the deal with that? I have no answers to them because I don't know. I don't control the t-shirts, so I'm asking you. Do Actually, you have anything in, to say about hypercritical t-shirts? In, in this case, you, you have and do control the, the t-shirts. Um, oh, yeah? Several uh, t-shirt designs were put forward going back, I would say, even as far as a year ago. And none of them, uh, I would say, none, none of them were suitable. Well, uh, I gave you a suggestion for a tagline. And, I said, you should put this on the shirt. And... Uh, and do you, so are you saying now that you approve these shirts? What you, you, uh, you showed me like, uh, yes, one sir, shirt yes or I no. Said, do, you, do you approve the last shirt then that we talked about? I think that shirt's fine. I'm not sure it would be what people want, but I thought that shirt would, would be fine. All but right. I, I also said, I believe last time we discussed this, that I'm also fine with a shirt that just says the name of the show. That's fine with me too. And I said, I think I saw, I said that, uh, other people may find just the name of the show more appealing as a shirt than, than, than the, the thing I suggested okay. to be on the shirt. Um, but so in either case, I have no objections to shirts, uh, but I'm also not doing anything to make them happen. Okay, so let, let's do the shirts then. We'll do them because I have production facilities in place now for all of this. Seriously, I'm not, I'm not kidding. We're ready yeah, to do this. Do you want feedback from, from listeners about whether they want a simple shirt that just has the name of the show or a shirt with an obnoxious text on it that I made up? Uh we could do we could do both and sell both yeah cuz i have a, you know i i don't remember what the original uh shirt suggestion was but i didn't like that one so i said if you're going to put a bunch of text on it it should be it should be this thing that i suggested which mm-hmm. i think no one would ever want to wear but i think it's funny uh or just the name of the show and that's you know generic and, and can we can we have your avatar on it that's the other thing I don't like. So I don't know See, if people have seen the other shirts like Merlin's shirt. We've all seen that one, right? Because it's been for sale. His had his face on it, right? We have done, we, I have requisitioned an avatar of you. And right. it, it, it's great. Jory Raphael did it. The guy that does the other avatars and the guy that's done all the work on 5x5 for, for you know, the, show, the shows, the show artwork. And he did one of you. And I would say it's stunning. I don't mind. Like the drawing is nice. It's just the question: Does did anyone want uh, even a cartoon version of my ugly head on their shirt, or do they just want the word or whatever? So, uh, shall we do a I don't poll? Have, I don't have objections to you selling a shirt with my head on it. It's all a question of look. If you want to sell a lot of shirts, we should make shirts that people actually want to buy. And I have a difficult time understanding what it is that people want out of a shirt like this. So, okay. So uh, here's my question for you then: Would you be content with? Do you want to make this decision, or should we leave it to the listeners? Uh, I, any, any of these options are fine. Okay. I, I'll tell you it's, what. It's my face and without plain show title, uh, or the, the thing that I suggested. Okay. So yeah. So here's, I'll just, just going to put this out there. Uh, we are doing t-shirts now. So that is, that is there. We are doing shirts. I will do a survey right now and I will put it, well, or by the time the show posts, it will be in the show notes. The show notes are going to be at five by five dot TV slash hypercritical slash 98. You can go and vote using this little survey, which will ask which of them, and maybe I can even show the, the images there. And people will be able to pick between the two shirts. I, I personally thought it would be wonderful, and this was very quickly vetoed by you. I thought it would be wonderful to have a little road sign that said Syrac- entering now entering Syracuse County. Yep, vetoed. Yeah, I would personally, I would love the heck out of that shirt. 
I'd get five of them. I'd wear one every day over, over my regular shirt. That's how much I like it. And I'd sleep in it. Mm -hmm. But you said no. So the, the choices that we have are either the name of the shirt. Like, I mean, the name of the show on a shirt that just says hypercritical. Would you want it to be the same sort of font and styling that we have for the artwork? Uh, or would you want it something different? I don't know. I'd have to see options, but yeah, but okay. That's, that's the obvious way to go with that one. Okay. And then the the other idea that I had was your face with some text that you had suggested, which I like that could be beneath it. Right. You can put the face with the one with the name of the show too. Like I said, the face is an optional. You can say with or without the face, either one of these two things, like there are many possible permutations, but like what it comes down to is like, if these are evenly spread, then I can just pick one. Right. But if everyone leans towards one thing, you want like these shirts are for the fans. So I want to give them something that they would want. Right. Right. So that's why I think they should have input into this. And plus, I mean, you want to sell a lot of shirts. So, you know, don't sell the one that no one wants to buy. And you will, but just so the people understand this, you, you will profit from these shirts. If this you is, buy thousands of them, yes, I will. Yeah, there's not, there's, not, uh, there's not a big margin in t-shirts. I mean, we do make a few bucks, but it's after, after production and shipping and the time that it takes for the people to, you know, box them up or package them up and send them away. Uh, it's, it's not a lot, but you will, you will be a, a, a winner in the profit sharing game. I'm assuming it's a minimum threshold where you have to sell a certain number of shirts for it to be profitable at all. So well, the- yeah, but I mean, it's it's got to be in it's got to be a couple hundred at least. But I'm sure so we'll, I'm sure we, we'll I, sell I, way more than that. We'll sell way more than that. We'll sell. I I predict we sell. I don't know. I don't know. Merlin sell. Merlin knows how to sell a shirt. Yeah, no, he had many shows to uh, to. Uh, but I'll tell you what. It, we're, here's the thing, though. They're not gonna. They won't make it to people by Christmas. Oh yeah, no, this is not like a Christmas thing or like, and this may all happen after the show is off the air, which I have no problem with. Like if fans want shirts, you know, like people have called it a commemorative t-shirt. Like, Hey, remember that show you used to listen to? It's gone yeah. now. That's Maybe we, could we put a little commemorative symbol on it somehow? <laughs> you don't need to put like years, like it's a gravestone. <laughs> I would like, well, it might be fun. I think it's a little morbid. In memory of John Syracuse. That's, that's too morbid. Okay. I mean, right, I'm just so- an idea guy. You're going to have to run with it. So there, so there is some motion on the t-shirt front, fans. 42 minutes in. Can I do a sponsor yet? You can. Hover.com, simplified domain management. You know, you, you go out there, you want a domain. That's what you want. .com, .net, .co, .tv, whatever. That's what you want. And a lot of these places, they'll try and upsell you on stuff. They'll try and sign you up for stuff that you don't want. They'll try and, you know, at the last minute, they'll change the, the registration from what you thought was one year to two years. So all of a sudden you're paying twice as much and you don't know why. And uh, this, the reason why is uh, because they want your money. Well, Hover wants your money too, but they don't want to nickel and dime you. They don't want to, uh, they don't want to, uh, to, you know, to give you a hard time with it. They just want you to, uh, to, to be happy. They just want you to be happy. So you go there, you enter a name in the field and they tell you if it's available or not. And then, uh, and, and then you register it and they give you free who is protection. They'll do free domain name transformation, <laughs> transfer valet services, where if you go through that awful process of trying to liberate your name from some other place, they'll do it. They'll just do it for you. So here's the deal. 10% off if you use the code Dan sent me. Hover.com slash Dan sent me. 10% off everything you do over there. And now that uh, Google Apps is charging... 
for uh, for their services, for the email stuff. You might want to check out their uh, email hosting. It's pretty cool. Go check them out. Hover.com slash Dan sent me. 42 minutes in, John. Yeah, it's like I said, this is a uh, grab bag show. I know. I'm so, just saying we're going to have to squash in two two more sponsors before you're done. Uh, I can go on for a long time. Oh, I know you can. <laughs> just a heads up, you know. Uh, so here are my here are my grab bag tops for today. I've got Google Maps, iTunes 11, uh, Tim Cook in the news, uh, the Apple Made in the USA thing, Twitterific Five. Wow, wow. Let's start with Twitterific Five. Or is is or am I in? Do I have any influence over this? Yeah. Well, I just thought that would be. Find, yeah, I was just listing them off so we know because I don't think we're going to get to all. Oh, them. we'll get them all. I guess they'll go along. Well, no, uh, we'll get to them all. All right, I will. I will hoist Twitterific Five up to the top. I just want to keep them. That seems like a quick. It seems like a quick win. You know. Oh, things always seem. Things always seem quick, don't they? Yes, they do. I start talking about them. All right, this actually will be quick. I have actually no notes, and this is all just going off my head. My notes are the words Twitterific and the number five. Um, so Twitterific Five is out. Twitterific is a Twitter client. Uh, I've been using Twitterific since its original incarnation. It has a unified timeline, what I call the unified timeline. We describe this on past shows. Basically, it's a single time-sorted list of tweets. doesn't matter what kind of tweets they are or why you're seeing them. It's just one big long list, and it's sorted by time. So you see the tweets from the people you follow. You see retweets from the people you follow. You see any tweet that mentions your name. You see tweets that are replies to you. You see your direct messages all in one list, all sorted by time. And that's the way I like to read Twitter and app.net because it gives me one list to go through and I go from the bottom up to the top because that's the way people do Twitter clients these days. Uh, and that's it. No switching to different panes, no checking your replies over here, no checking your direct messages over here. Even those those alternate views do actually exist. I never use them. Uh, so that's Twitterific. Uh, and I've tried and purchased many, many, many other Twitter clients. Yeah. Uh, from the original Tweety to mm-hmm. all of the modern things like Tweetbot or the official Twitter client until it got gross and, you know, <laughs> ton, tons of other, what, uh, Twilight or Twinkle or whatever that crazy one so was. So what, what is the, your current, as of right now, what is your current choice? Your number one, your number one. For uh, Twitter client? Yeah. Twitterific. Like I was saying is I've tried so many other ones and I've always ended up coming back to Twitterific. Uh, I, the only other ones I even have installed anymore is I still have Tweetbot installed, I believe. Uh, and that's, that's it, I think. Most the other ones have uh, gone out of favor. I think Twinkle was the one. This is amazing. You think about Twitter the way it is today, but it was either, I don't remember what it is. So, Mole, do you think it's Twinkle in the chat room? It was the one made by that company that employed Mike Lee. Uh, way to remember. I don't remember what the company was. Uh, and what they were trying to do was make a Twitter client, but like attaching their own social network to it. Oh, so, like, you did stuff and, like, it posted to Twitter, but it also tracked other information about you and had its own, like, social network thing built in. Like, it was, can you imagine? Like, they don't even let you make a regular Twitter client these days. And these guys in the early days were making or make trying to make their own social network piggybacking on the Twitter social graph. Uh, yeah, that would not fly these days. Different different time. Totally different time. The old days. The salad days. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh I always try other clients. Like I'm not just stuck on Twitterific, but I do like the unified timeline and lots of other clients don't have that. So that's keeping me away from other clients a lot, uh, including Tweetbot. Uh, But here's the thing about Twitterific. I I used it when it came out and then they came out with version two and version two was not like version one with like stuff tweaked. It was like an entirely new program. 
it just happened to also be called Twitterific. There was some similarities in like the default dark theme, which was one of their distinguishing characteristics of having light text on a dark background, a little bit of the colors the same. And of course the icon, uh, the little Ollie uh, Tweety bird, which the entire world steals from them and uses in various uh, ways was the same, but otherwise it's like they burned the application to the ground and made a new one. Right. And that was disconcerting to me. And I'm like, what, but I like, Twitterific, and now there's this other thing that you also call Twitterific, but it's a totally different program. Uh, so we're on Twitterific 5 now, and every time a new version of Twitterific has come back, I have liked the old version better than the new version. Mm. Right? Now, one way to look at that is that Twitterific is getting worse and worse over time. But that's not actually the case. What happens is that I'm like, oh my god, this new version, I can't use this. I'm sticking with the old one. But by the time the new version comes out, the old version, which used to be the new version, I like better than, like, I, I come around to the other side. So by the time Twitterific 3 came out, I like Twitterific 2 better than Twitterific 1. <laughs> yeah. And I said, oh, Twitterific 3, what are you doing? I love Twitterific 2. It's perfect. Don't change a thing. What, I just, you don't need to do anything. Maybe just add support for the new retweets or something, but you don't mm-hmm. need a whole new app. And this happens every single every time. time. Two, two to three. When three came out, I'm like, no, I like, you know, when, when four came out, I said, I'd rather stick with three. Four is not. And then it's and like, wasn't this the version that you refused to upgrade to a little while ago? And it's, and it's an amazing phenomenon of, uh, you know, I guess it's just sticking with something you're familiar with or just having an emotional attachment to the particular look and feel of the client. Because it's not like they did radical changes in functionality. It's mostly just look and feel and how things are arranged and where buttons are and stuff like that. Uh, so I'm amazed again that it happened again with Twitter 5. Once again, Twitter 5 looks like they burned Twitter 4 to the ground and wrote an entirely new application. <laughs> it's like, just has the same name. And again... I like Twitter for four better than Twitter for five. And I said, I know I just want to stick with four, but when Twitter for six come out, that's how I'm going to feel about Twitter for five. No, five was perfect. Six. What are you doing? You're messing things up. It's an amazing phenomenon to me. Uh, so, uh, that's just what I wanted to mention. Uh, now it could be like every time I'm like, all right, that happened last time, but this time, no, seriously, guys, I really do like the old version better. Uh, and this time I'm not going to come around. It is not just a matter of being used to the old one. There are actual real things that are different about this version that I don't like. They're going to keep me on it. Uh, of course, I've thought that for all the past versions too, and it's turned out not to be the case. Uh, so this time around, uh, yeah, I've got Twitter Hook 5, and I like Twitter Hook 4 better because it looks nicer, not because of the functionality. Twitter Hook 5 actually has better functionality. They finally added Pull to Refresh with a cute little animation with a bird coming out of an egg. Uh, and it's, it's faster and more yeah. responsive. It has more features like... It's just that my tweets don't look like they used to. And for something you stare at so much, like I use Twitter a lot, and I'm constantly looking at it on my iPod touch and stuff, you get attached to the way things look. Like, that's not what a tweet's supposed to look like. Things are rearranged or in the wrong colors and or in the wrong fonts or the wrong size. And yeah. So this, this is the challenge of making new software. And I, I applaud Icon Factory for across five versions continuing to do this. I, I think I called it uh, on Twitter a Phoenix-like transformation. Like every time they just burn their their most beloved... The, you know, the beloved Twitter client, they burn it to the ground and make a new one. And they just, you know, they don't backslide and they don't, you know, go back and change it. So it looks like the old one. They just plow forward. It's uh, admirable and very interesting. And of course, if you've never used Twitter before, then Twitter 5 can stand on its own merits. But apparently I'm sentimental about the way software used to look. Was that fast? That was fast. That was pretty fast. Google Maps. Next. Google Maps. Boy, oh, boy. It's timely, right? When was that? Yesterday? Came yesterday. Out? Yesterday morning. Brand new Google Apps, um, Google Maps app for iOS came out. 
And uh, people have been installing it on iOS, and it almost immediately became the most popular app in the App Store. It has 10,000 four-and-a-half or five-star ratings. I'm just looking at the link you sent me. Uh, yeah, you have to you have to, have to show it to them to see if they want it. You're asking me if you could show them the shirt? Yes, can I show them that? Yeah, you have to in the poll, right? Well, I'm going to in the poll, but I just wanted to be sure. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you have to you have to get an opinion. I've to, just you, put that into the ch- in, in, into the chat room. Uh, that is the forerunner in in the shirt, as opposed to just the name. That is the shirt that we have proposed. I certainly would buy one of these. Would you like it in the sort of olive, or would you like it in the asphalt, or is there something different that you? And by the way, that is a, that it does look like you. That's an idealized version of me. Yeah. I'm, well, that's how I see you. There you go. Yeah, no, I like the I like the green color. I also like gray too. Either one of those colors is fine. So the would the choice be that shirt or with, just the one with the name? Or just the one that shirt or just the one with the name or how about one with the name and the your face on it? Also an option. Those are all Okay, on the so those table. are going whatever, to be the three whatever, options. Whatever the people want. Got it. Check. All right. Uh so Google Maps yeah, we've gone through this on past shows about Apple ditching Google for their mapping, trying to do mapping on their own, that not working out too well for them due to mapping data issues, even though the Apple Maps application is actually pretty cool. And then there was the question of, will Google make its own Maps application for iOS? And the other question was, will Apple allow that to be in the store, you know, for whatever cranky reason they might decide, no, you, we want you out of and you can't have your map, you know, whatever. They're, they make the rules. So it was, it was a possibility. So we have the answer to that, at least. Uh, Apple allows Google's map application to be on the phone. It's not the default map application. You can't change that or anything like that, but you, they did allow it to be sold on the store. And we also know the answer to the question of, will Google deign to make a map application for iOS? Yes, they will, and here it is. And uh, We kind of had the answers to those before, because Google said they were working on something and blah, blah, blah. But uh, So many questions have been answered by the existence of this, of this application and its presence on the store. Although there was a fun part in the beginning uh, when it first came out, where everyone like, I can't download it. The store says this application is no longer available. And then you could spin out conspiracy theories about, oh, someone accidentally approved it, but really Apple is taking it down and they don't want them. Yeah, but it turns out it was just just Apple doing its wonderful job of server-side software services. Sad. Uh, so what does this Google Maps app have? Yeah. It has vector map tiles instead of just bitmaps, mm-hmm. which allows them to load faster so you don't need to load these giant bitmaps. Pretty, pretty nice. Images. Has turn-by-turn directions, which uh, it didn't have before, uh, but which Apple's new maps thing do have. If you do driving directions, it will you know go through the directions one turn at a time for you instead of just showing you the source and destination and the trail between them. Uh, one of the questions about this is, all right, presumably Google was not willing to provide these two particular things, vector map tiles and turn-by-turn directions before when Apple was, in theory, negotiating with Google saying, you know, hey, Google, we see on Android phones, you've got turn-by-turn directions and vector maps. We'd like to include those in our iOS built-in maps application that uses your data. Can, Can we get that data from you? And presumably Google was saying no and that negotiation didn't work out. I think this is all hearsay and rumor because I don't think either company has officially uh, revealed the details of their negotiations. But the assumption is that Apple wanted vector maps and turn-by-turn directions and Apple and Google could not come to an agreement about them. Google was saying you can have them, but, and Apple would say we don't like that, but, and they would go back and forth. And eventually Apple just said, you know what, we're going to make our own maps. Thanks, but no thanks. We're going to let this contract 
uh, expire, you're off the phone on iOS 6, and that's what happened. Uh, and so that's the, you know, and then Google goes out and, and puts these things on the phone. Well, if Google was was trying to negotiate before saying you can't have these vector maps in turn by turn directions, and then they turn around and just give them to them, give them to Apple for free, because this is a free application. How does that make any sense? Supposing Google's stupid not to give in to Apple's demands, because then they'd still be the default right. uh, map data supplier. Uh, but I think it's pretty easy to explain because it's that but part. You can have vector maps in turn by turn directions, but Google would say we want this stuff from you. And what did they want? They wanted more information about users. And so when Google puts out its uh, map application, they're much more willing to provide iOS customers with vector maps and turn-by-turn directions because they can also get you to sign into your Google account from the map application and collect all of your data about what you're searching for and where you're going and all your location, you know. And that's presumably all the stuff that Apple was not willing to give to Google when they were just the data provider for the default Google Max application that Apple wrote. Uh, so even though it looks weird and strange how we arrived at this point, it actually does make, uh, I think, a, a reasonable amount of sense given uh, you know, plausible assumptions about what went on in the negotiations between them. So when you launch the Google Maps app, it wants you to log in with your Google account, which I did because I have no paranoia about that. I like my Google account and everything like that. Uh, they've got a little checkbox that you can check to whether you want to send anonymous information for Google to help them improve their services, blah, blah, blah. I think Gruber was complaining the other day about uh, how the little checkbox they want you to uncheck to say, no, don't send my, like anonymous information to Google. You can uncheck that thing, but it's a tiny checkbox. And, you know, not only is it a tiny checkbox, but as Gruber pointed out in the thing he wrote yesterday, like iOS doesn't really use checkboxes. They have those slider on-off switches, which are way bigger. Uh, to Google's credit, if, if you are in a Google mindset and you assume every single screen you see in a Google iOS application is a web view, you can say, oh, if that's a web view, then I'm sure that that's a checkbox control styled with CSS and that they've got, that's a label tag surrounding the giant text block and it's label and then it has the for attribute equal to the ID of the checkbox. And so if I tap anywhere in this text, it's going to uncheck the checkbox. And sure enough, if you tap anywhere in that gigantic text block, it will uncheck the checkbox. And I know this because I set up Google Maps on multiple iOS devices, and I couldn't hit that stupid checkbox either. And so I just went and said, you know what, this is Google. This is probably a label. And sure enough, uh, it worked. So if you're trying to uncheck that checkbox, remember that you can tap the text area. Um, so yeah, I tried the app. It looks like Google Maps. Uh, a little bit faster, a little bit nicer. Vector maps are nice. The turn-by-turn directions seem to work. I haven't used it to navigate anywhere. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm going out this weekend. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll have a, a battle between uh, <laughs> navigation services. I've only got one iPhone, so maybe I can do them both at once. If you try to do Apple's driving directions at the same time as you do Google. No, it won't work. I think it would work. Because the Apple one gets like run in the background and stuff, where it's the Google one, you'd have to be in the foreground on that app. So I don't know. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it's... Uh, we, we live in interesting times, as they say. And I, <laughs> These I think, are in very interesting times. And thinking about the uh, the mapping issue, like, I, I think I mentioned this last time we talked about maps, but you know, there's only one world here, and it's just—it seems like such a shame to have separate companies, uh, each pursuing their own data about the one Earth that is the same for all of them. Right? It wouldn't it be much better if we could pool our efforts. And what I was thinking about is how these big technology companies frequently have patent cross-licensing agreements uh, or other intellectual property cross-licensing agreements, like between a- Apple and Microsoft, and Intel and AMD, and all over the place with like you. You don't sue me and I don't sue you and we can use each other's intellectual property. Right. Uh, a map cl- cross-licensing agreement, these probably exist already too, but it would be better if we had more of those where they say, okay, I can use your map data and you can use mine and we'll work, and we'll work together. You know, 
uh, and on the broader scale, sort of worldwide collaboration between everybody to let's all just make the map of this one planet better together. And that's kind of what OpenStreetMap is. I put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, their description is a free worldwide map created by people like you. Uh, and at various times, I don't know if this has ever been proven or just rumored, it seemed like Apple and Google both used OpenStreetMap data to help make their data better. Uh, and it's good that OpenStreetMap exists, but what we really need is the reverse. Apple, Google, Nokia, all those people giving their map data back to OpenStreetMap or some other entity that form, forms a similar role, like the entire world working together to make one extremely accurate, extremely detailed, constantly updated map of all of the infrastructure and land masses and everything in the world. Doesn't that sound like it would be better, you know, instead of having people do things separately, but, you know, make the maps better for everyone at once. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, map info is clearly a competitive advantage in the, in the mobile market right now. So there's little chance of that happening because uh, the only people who are motivated to share are the people who are losing right now. Jim so. Seth on, on Twitter says that working, running multiple uh, maps does work. Yeah, so yeah, I thought it there worked. There you go. Surprise, you were right. Because Apple's, uh, you know, Apple gets to play by their own crazy set of rules, and you, and then one other person gets to play by the restrictive, you know, third-party application set of rules. So they should, you know, that's why it works. I, if you had to run two third-party applications at the same time, eh, maybe that would work too because of the new background APIs. Uh, but anyway, it, it's just kind of a shame that we we as customers are suffering from these big giants, technology giants fighting with each other using their map data as like a weapon. We, we just all want to get where we're going. We want the best map data possible. And yeah, and so of course, uh, you know, Apple and maybe Microsoft or whatever, yeah, let's all work together making maps. And Google, who apparently has the best map data, is like, you know what, maybe we'll just keep our map data and you guys will just suffer down there. It's a shame. All right, another sponsor before I do iTunes 11? Oh, that's what's uh, that's what's up next. What's next? Oh, that's gonna be a big one. I put Maybe. this poll up, by the way. I heard. Yeah, people are complaining about no Syracuse County option. No, no Syracuse County option. No, he said no. He said no. So, what am I gonna do? You have many options. There are many options. This that's just not one of them. There are many others like it, but this one is mine. Yeah, yeah. Our friends over at Rackspace have this new thing called a mail gun. It is an email automation engine. It's used already by over 10,000 developers to deliver, parse, and track emails through their applications. A lot of transactional email companies out there, they just focus on delivering the email, which, I mean, that makes sense. You've got to deliver it, right? But not Mailgun. They've got a REST API for everything. What that means is that you can fully automate outgoing and incoming emails, and you can get tons and tons of analytics about them on everything, really. They don't just deliver your mail, John. They help you automate your application. The nice folks over at Mailgun, they have created a special offer just for 5x5. Listeners, sign up at Mailgun.com. Use the coupon code 5 by 5 What else? Well, Dan sent me, but in this case, 5 by 5 And you'll receive up to 10% off for your first three months. So if you're building an application, you're sick of fighting with email, try Mailgun.com today. Coupon code 5 by 5 Mail gun. I just figured out that's it, that's a, a, a play on nail gun. Right. Just figured that out. Okay. <laughs> it's one of those things that just obvious to everybody, but if you don't think about it. So put up put up the poll. Go vote. Polls in the show notes. Five by five. The TV slash hypercritical slash and the eight. Then go there and they vote. And how long do we going to give them to vote for? I don't know. I want to start you. doing these next week. I mean, like like we saw with the last one. Uh, after like. 
a couple hundred or thousand people enter, like the percentages probably won't change too much. So give time for people to download the show, hear about it, go to the show notes, blah, blah, blah. So at least a week, right? All right. So next week on Friday of next week on our 99th show, this will be our pre-Christmas show. Uh, People can, at that time, we will close the voting and we will, uh, we will allow people to render their decision and I will present it to you. All right. That's fine with me. Assuming enough people have answered, if 20 people have answered. No, we've already, let me see how many have already replied right now. Uh, 134 people have replied. So already we, and, and. Off to a good start. Yes, I would say off to a fairly good start. And uh, when I'm sure, yeah. And do you want to do you want to guess just by glancing at this? Not um, this is not a scientific thing. Would you like to guess the one that seems to be in the lead right now? Let me go look at the uh, the survey so I can see what the options were actually. And you would think that by my showing the the picture, the image of the one with the John Syracuse avatar, plus there are many things wrong with the shirt, that that would automatically be the winner, but maybe not. No, I I, I, I wouldn't have guessed that one. I would guess just the text logo. So far, that is that is what I'm seeing yeah, here. That's it's close. Thinking. The uh, there are many things wrong with this shirt is a very close second. There's now 146 responses. All right. Well, people and have they're time neck to and make- neck, man. They're neck and neck. Almost nobody, almost nobody wants the Avatar Plus hypercritical though. That thing is tanking. Yeah, it's too. Uh, it's tanking. Now there's 150. Foul, as they say. <laughs> that is what they say. All right, iTunes 11. You know your listeners. Have iTunes you installed 11. iTunes 11? I have installed it. At first, I just installed it at work, and then I installed it at home after I decided there was no, there was no stopping it. Uh, this, what, this came out like two weeks ago or something. Was it that long ago? The two uh, weeks? It seems, seems like less. It seems like such a long time ago. Seems like less. Yeah. So iTunes 11, we saw teased many months ago. When did we see it teased? It was like when the iPad mini was announced, I think. Uh-huh. They said, oh, and also we have this great new version of iTunes and look at it, it's all crazy and stuff like that and it will be out in November and they like barely made it in November because they right. released it on November 31st or whatever. Yeah, so that's at least two weeks ago. Uh, here's the thing about iTunes. Like if they're going to come out with a major new version of iTunes as they were presenting iTunes 11, it's not just an incremental change. Let's show you all these features. Look at all this crazy stuff, right? The reason for a, a, a big new version of iTunes, it would have to address whatever is wrong with the previous version of iTunes. Mm-hmm. And here's what I would say, my, my top picks for what, what was wrong with iTunes 10 and earlier. And then we'll see how iTunes 11 does to address those concerns. And then people have their own list of what they think was wrong with iTunes earlier. Like, you know, lots of people have complaints about iTunes, particularly Windows users, but everyone has some sort of, oh, I hate iTunes. You hear that a lot. Uh, even though everyone says, oh, I hate iTunes, maybe they all hate it for different reasons. Uh, so here are my reasons. Number one, mm. terrible performance and reliability when it comes to dealing with iOS devices. That sounds very specific and picky, but I think it's like, you know, it's one of the main things I use this per, this thing for, especially in the days before wire, wireless sync and everything. But even in, in the age after, it's some, there are some things you still need to connect your iOS device to your Mac to do. Like if you just you know, ripped your own video and you want to shove it on there. Uh, I think it's still the only way to do that is through a USB cable or, or wireless, the wireless equivalent. Like you have to use iTunes to do it. I don't think there's any way through, I guess you could put it in your Dropbox and try to get it open. And uh, anyway, uh, 
I still end up connecting to, to iTunes a lot. And I have lots of iOS devices, so I find myself there a lot. Uh, or even stuff like my iPod Shuffle, where this, that's the only option. If I want to change what's on my iPod Shuffle, which is where I listen to all of my podcasts for the most part, uh, I have to connect it. To, so I'm doing it every day, basically. I'm connecting my iPod Shuffle to my thing and using it with iTunes. So that's, that's a very important function of iTunes for me, uh, is dealing with iOS devices. And everything about that experience is terrible. Terrible performance means that like doing almost anything with my iOS devices, not just my shuffle, but even the, the more advanced ones like touches and, and iPads and stuff, it, it hangs the entire UI. Like when it's syncing stuff into my shuffle or like when it's just connecting it or whatever, there's nothing else you can do. I get the beach ball or if I don't get the beach ball, I can click and it just doesn't respond. It's hanging the whole UI. So that's, that's performance. Uh, plenty of situations where I get a device stuck when it's syncing, like it's, you know, syncing forever and not actually, un, you know, never completes or it syncs for a really, 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 really long time and then fails at the very end. And then you're like, oh, I got to try it again. And it syncs for a really, really, really long time and then fails at the end. And that's, that's maddening. Uh, another classic one is can't sync because the sync operation is already in progress. And you're like, oh, now do I need to hard reboot this iOS device? Do I need to restart iTunes? Do I need to restart my computer? Incredibly frustrating. Error messages about, oh, couldn't sync X, Y, and Z, but doesn't explain to you why, or just says these aren't compatible with this, this device, and that's not true because you know they are compatible because if you get the file in there another way, oh, terrible. <laughs> Lot, but, uh, you know, <laughs> lots of things that are unclear about what will happen when you sync. Like, you want to know, all right, after if I put this in here and I sync this, what is the outcome of this operation going to be? And it's very unclear uh, what that's going to be, especially when it comes to figuring out what to do about changes you made on the device versus changes that you made in iTunes and how they'll reconcile with each other. And no matter what it picks, it's going to be wrong in some way. Like, so I'm not so much saying like, oh, it didn't do the thing that I wanted because yeah, it's never going to do the thing you want. Uh, the problem is there's so many possible options, but what the job of the app is to at least show me, like, even if it's going to make decisions that I don't uh, agree with, show me what the result of this operation will be. Don't make me surprised to go, oh my God, it wiped out all of these files or replaced this version with an older or a newer version or did something else that I don't want. It's, the UI doesn't show me what uh, what it's supposed to be doing. That's that, that's the second item is confusing UI, and not just for iOS things, but the entire application. Uh, the most confusing thing about the iTunes UI, uh, the the previous iTunes UI, is that there's lots of small pieces of hidden state. Like I don't maybe program maybe non programmers don't think about programs this way, but I'm thinking about you know somewhere in memory is some state information that iTunes has about what it's doing. And that state is really important to the way this program works, but I can't see it because there's no visual representation. Like one of the pieces of state is uh, the thing that's currently playing, the track that's currently playing. What is that thing part of? Is it a part of a playlist? Is it part of, you know, a, a filtered list? Is it a part of a smart playlist? Is it a part of an album? Like when I hit next or previous, what will that go to? That information about where this thing is playing iTunes knows and you right. can kind of figure it out by looking at okay the little speaker icon is next to this thing and stuff like that uh, one, one of the ways you can also figure it out is if you are not you, you can't pause when the currently playing when the list that the currently playing thing is on is not selected the, the pause button changes to a stop button so if you're someplace else in the application looking at something else when you were playing a song from a playlist you can't hit the little, you know, the little pause button has a, the square on it, has the stop icon on it because I don't know why, because but it, 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 that's a signal you, it, that it uses to let you know that if you were to hit that button now, 
we're just going to stop what we were doing and do a new thing. We're not going to pause the track in progress. But when you reselect, say, your playlist that the thing was playing, I was like, okay, now if you hit it, you're just pausing in that playlist and we're not going to lose your place or whatever. That's terrible way to express that state. It's a terrible UI. I hate it. I hate having to go back and select something so I can find the, the pause button so I can actually use the pause button uh, to pause the thing. Uh, the status area of iTunes, that little like fake LCD display that's supposed to, I guess, look like a, a stereo component system that you know kids these days probably don't even know what the hell that is, but I think that's what it's supposed to look like. Or maybe it's supposed to look like a car stereo or whatever it is. Uh, it's not so much that it's skeuomorphic trying to look like a crappy low-contrast LCD display, although that I think is dumb because why would you intentionally make something low-contrast? They've, they've changed their mind on that a few times too. Like, is it supposed to look like an LCD or is it just grayish text or whatever? But that's not the worst part about it. The worst part about it is that it's just one display for the whole application. So what, even when multiple things are happening at the same time, that display shows like one of them or cycles between them or lets you cycle between them. Like if you're downloading podcasts at the same time as you're playing a song, at the same time an iOS device is syncing, and you want to know what the progress of any of those things are, I hope the little stupid display is showing what you want. If not, fight with it to try to figure out, you know, or change your view or click something different in the sidebar to make that one stupid display show what you're doing. Uh, it's it, like, this is the type of thing where they say, oh, we're going to do visual simplification. It's one window with one status display, but the application isn't that simple. You can't simplify by merely changing your status display to just be one window, unless you also change it to be that only one thing could be happening at a time or fit all your status in that window or something, but they don't do either one of those things. Uh, and iCloud, just for all the benefits that it brought over mold me, just adds even more weirdness on top of this all. Uh, I have a link in the show notes, uh, from an R's article called iTunes Through the Ages that takes you back through the history of iTunes. It maybe you don't didn't live through it, so you don't know what iTunes used to be like, but you can look at how it's changed over the this years. This is a neat yeah, we had this on the frequency in like a week or so ago and and it's it has changed. There's some things that have not changed at all. And there's other things that have changed so much that it's weird. Because yeah, this I'm, is an application that really has provided the same functionality at its core. But then they've added so much other stuff onto it, and yet some things are just uncannily the same. And I call it iCloud here because it's like it's like the status icon that broke the camel's back. Or it's like, all right, iTunes, they kept adding more stuff. You can see it in the timeline. They kept adding more stuff, and you can do more stuff and more stuff. And then we have iOS devices, and we have this, and we have podcasts, and we have all this stuff. And, and now it's like the line, you know, we have a link to the store. We have a link to ping, although that one went away. Uh, like the, the line items in list view, just they kept adding more and more things. And now we've got some crazy cloud thing that can be in seven different modes. Uh, you know, where is this track and what happened to my original track and and why couldn't it be matched and what does matched mean? And like, it's just too much now. Like there's just too much information that they need to convey on top of the old interface, which was just like, it used to be simple, you know, uh, when it was just like a list of tracks and some metadata, but now there's like a million things in there. And uh, iCloud just adds another variable to all the other variables and another huge set of functionalities. It's just too much. And now admittedly sync and iCloud and stuff like that. These are hard UI problems. It's not like I'm saying, Oh, it's so easy. They should obviously do something. The obvious solution is it's not obvious how to fix all these things, but uh, you know, I, an iTunes UI that was designed in the modern era and not designed in an age when CD ripping was like the main activity yeah, of the right. application. It was like rip, burn, mix. You remember, Hey, get oh, iTunes. Man. You can rip your CDs. Right? That was like the big, that was the big selling point. And for a CD ripper, it was like, it was refreshingly simple and direct. A good way, you know, had a reasonable number of options. You'd rip your CDs, you'd show them up. But like, that's what the iTunes design is centered around. And it hasn't changed since when, despite the fact that what we do with iTunes has changed radically. Uh, so 
if you're going to say, you know, iTunes 11, you know, a big change from the past, I would want iTunes 11 to address. These are the concerns that I wanted to address. I, I wanted to, you know, have better performance and reliability, have a less confusing user interface, uh, and particularly be centered around like the things we do with it now, like, you know, iCloud and well, I use podcasting. Maybe it's a, a narrow thing, but like uh, acknowledge what we do now and de-emphasize the things that we don't do as much uh, and like and build the UI around that. Don't just say, OK, we're going to hide that option, but just like rethink the UI. Like if you if iTunes didn't exist and you had to make an application that did these things now, what would you make it look like? Uh, so, you know, iTunes 11, chance for a fresh start. Uh, but no, <laughs> that we did not get a fresh start, uh, which is a shame. So the performance of iTunes 11, still terrible. So, yeah, you know, still consi- consistently terrible, but we've established that. Yeah, maybe it's, is it worse? Do you think it's worse than the previous version? <sighs> well, Some people have been saying like, oh, iTunes 11 is doing stuff that the previous version never did, but you know, but certainly it's not like, oh, now finally it feels so much faster and snappier and more responsive. That is not the case at all. No, it's that there's no improvement. I'm just, I'm just struggling whether I would say that it's worse. It doesn't seem to feel worse for me. It seems, but see, there are all these little things that happen now that visually little visual things. Like when you, you know, when you switch between different sections, there's little animations and things that sort of, I don't know. It's, I think it's slower. Or even just playing. Some people are saying like there were, you know, I think Daniel Jonka just tweeted today that he was typing and all of a sudden typing became less responsive in the application he was typing in. And then he quit iTunes and it got fixed. No, you know what? That's actually, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I have noticed that too, where I'll be typing in, in an application just the way he described it. Cause I saw this, his tweet too. And I, at first I thought, well, I'm sure it's not that, but now I'm, thinking maybe maybe it is something else going on it'll like capture it'll capture the the input and then it'll sort of release it later yeah the, the, i mean that could be like you know coincidence point point zero version tweaks and stuff like that but certainly it's not a, a big departure right and you know same thing it still hangs when you're doing anything with an ios device which just it, it makes the application feel old like the modern os 10 applications apple gives tons and tons of tools to developers to not block the main thread of the user interface, to keep accepting events, right? Do not do blocking device IO on the main thread. Like, that's the whole reason Grand Central Dispatch exists. Like, they have just no reason for it, right? And it makes a terrible user experience because when I plug in my iPod Shuffle, as I do every single day, I know that I can't bother, don't even bother trying to click anything else on iTunes. Beach ball, don't go to a different playlist, don't take a look at what podcasts have come down. Don't go try to refresh them. Just once you plug that thing in and iTunes starts mounting it or you change the tracks on it or whatever, the whole thing is blocked. It looks like the whole application hangs. It feels gross. It feels like an old application. Uh, the one that I, I tweeted about that still galls me and people are asking about why is that the preferences dialog is still app modal. Uh, people are asking, what, what do you care? Like how often do you use the press dialog box? Is that, mm-hmm. is that affecting your usage of iTunes? Uh, but even before I get to that, but what other people ask is, what the hell does app modal mean? <laughs> There's a little sidebar on, on that for people wondering uh, what a modality and user interface means. So a mode is a state of the user interface uh, where it's focused on a particular activity. Uh, so the user interface changes in such a way that it's like, okay, now you're going to do this. And so the user interface will change to the mode where you're doing whatever this is. Right? 
And modes are generally considered user unfriendly. And the reason they're considered unfriendly is because you don't want users to be stuck in a mode. Because if you have an interface that changes mode and says, okay, you would like to do X. Now we're in the X mode. Uh, that sounds fine. It's like, isn't that great? This the software is tailoring itself to this one thing that I want to do until you decide, oh, actually, I want to do something else. And if you want to do something else, now you have to figure out how to get out of the mode you're in and then go into the other mode or whatever. And getting, you don't, getting out of a mode can be frustrating. If you're in a mode and, and you want to go do something else, you want to just go do it. You don't want to be like, oh, how do I get out of this mode? Uh, that, that's why they're considered unfriendly. A great example of uh, software with modes is uh, everyone's friend VI, the, the Unix text editor, which yes. has famously insert mode and command mode, which if you describe this to a modern computer user, sounds crazy. And I would agree with the modern computer user in this case. It is crazy. Uh, insert mode is where you get to type stuff. You're like, why, why would there be a mode in a text editor where you don't get to type stuff? In insert mode, when you press the letter A key, a letter A appears, like when you're typing. And, and that's the way everyone wants a, a text editor to work. Like if I'm typing something, when I type the letter A, I want the letter A to appear. But uh, VI also has command mode, where when you type things, it doesn't interpret them as a request for you to put that text into the document. It interprets it as a command. The VI users will tell you this is awesome because then you can have commands that are a single key press. So if you, you know, well, dollar sign has a shift or whatever, but if you, but if you press, uh, you know, I don't know off the top of my head, which one is down? K? Is K down? Yeah. Let's get onto that, yeah. If you press the K button when in command mode, it will move the cursor down a line. Uh, if you press the dollar sign when in command mode, it will move the cursor to the end of the line. Uh, all of, all of your key presses are interpreted as commands. And that's a mode because the same key press in a different mode does a different thing. Uh, and, you know, again, people who are computer nerds and experts. Wait a, minute, users, wait a minute. J is down. K is up. J is, J is down. I don't I'm not obviously not. Yeah, a VI H user. is left. I was looking at it wrong. H is left. J is down. K is up. L is right. A is beginning of line, right? Maybe that's zero. I don't know. No. I, I obviously do not use VI. I know enough to get into UI, uh, to, to get into VI, edit a document and get, I, I can, uh, I know X, DD to delete line, search, go to beginning, end, save, exit without saving. Like, like VI survival guide. It's, this that's is all. one of those things where I, the things that I learned in VI, including like how to move around the screen and the little, little insert in front of the line, end of the line. I don't know what any of them are. If I was asked, it's become muscle memory, but I know very, like I did this VI peep code thing, like the screencast. And yep. for like the week after that, I was like the king of VI. I remembered everything I was using it. And then like after that, I for, forgot it all. And I'm back to like the five basic things that I remembered in 1994 when I first learned it. No, it's not, a, a is a pen, not beginning of line. Sorry. Yeah. A is a uh, pen and yeah, I that, is that, insert. That was, and that was the last command. Was like a, anyway. The key breakthrough for me for VI was like, I would get into VI and I didn't want to learn it. I didn't want to know it. I'm like, just getting it out of this thing. But right. if you don't know the A command for a pen, you can get into situations where you can't do what you want to do. Like, I can't get to the end of this line. And when I go to the end, of it, it won't let me move the cursor to the right. So I can't, you know, you can hit I to go in insert mode, but then you're putting the thing before. So you have to know a pen to get the maddening. Uh, I do not like modes. I do not like VI. Yes, for the people asking chat room, I am an Emacs person. Uh, I was for... A while, that's like the only time I've ever written Lisp in my life. I, you know, the whole nine yards. Emacs is, is my friend. And even Emacs, you get into a mode when you're in a freaking mini buffer in Emacs. If you're, you know, oh, uh, I want to do something else. Nope, sorry, that command is not valid in a mini buffer. And beep, 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 and it beeps at you and you're frustrated. And even Emacs has modes. Uh, but yeah, modes are generally considered not friendly because 
you know, you don't want people to be stuck there. They want, I want to do something else. It's like, actually, you can't do something else because that something else you wanted to do is interpreted differently in this mode. Oh, well, if you want to do something else, you have to get out of this mode. I hope you know how to exit this mode. Uh, so mode's not friendly. Now, a modal window in the, in the sense of a, a graphical user interface, a modal window is a window that puts the application into a particular mode. And that mode is usually deal with this window now, please. Uh, and you can't do anything else in the user interface until that window is dealt with. Uh, lots of user interface on the Mac used to be modal back in, you know, the 80s and, and 90s. Uh, for example, open save dialog box used to be modal. When you went hit command O to open a document, you could not do anything in the rest of that application until you either decided to open a document or hit cancel. Uh, that, that's what we call the app modal, where right. the entire application is blocked by this one window that's up on the screen. Uh, back in the old, old days, the whole application was system modal. Like when you were running an application, you couldn't even see the finder. Uh, it wasn't running anymore. You, you know, it was, so app modal was system modal back in those days, basically, because uh, you couldn't run multiple applications at once. When you launched an application, the finder was gone. All you were in was this application. And so when you hit the command O to, to open a document, you couldn't use the rest of Mac Paint or whatever it is you were using until you dealt with the dialog box, and you couldn't do anything else because this was the only thing that was running because the thing had 128 kilobytes of RAM, people. All right. Uh, gradually, modality has been reduced in, in the Mac operating system. Uh, once you could run multiple applications at once, there was a distinction between system modal and app modal. A system modal dialog box or window would stop you from using that application, but you could switch to another running application and use that. And system modal dialog box... You couldn't do anything until you dealt with that dialog box. Couldn't change to another application. Couldn't touch anything. It's system modal. Uh, all those things were considered unfriendly because you don't want to be blocked from doing what you're doing by this stupid window that wants you to deal with it. Uh, it in OS X, in the modern era, where of course we can run multiple applications and everything, uh, the way OS X applications should work and mostly do is that almost nothing should be modal. So you have tons of apps running at once. So you can switch freely between them. Open save doesn't block the entire application. It's not app modal anymore in good applications. You can have multiple occurrences of those running at once because they're, you know, sheets. You know, if you go into text edit or whatever and, and hit open or save, uh, well, open and open separate dialog box, but save or whatever, you can have them attached as sheets to, to like, I'm in the middle of saving this document, but I haven't decided where I'm going to save it. I'm going to work on this one now. Okay, I'm, I'm going to try to save this one, but I haven't decided where I'm going to save it. You can have two save sheets attached to two different documents, still go to a third document within the same application and work on it. That's the advantage of not being modal. Like your whole application, your whole work in text edit is not blocked because you haven't decided to make a decision about where you're going to save this thing yet. You can just have it stew over there. Of course, autosave puts more wrinkles into this. You can read my mountain line review for more on that if you want. Uh, but in general, reduction of modes is how we make progress because we don't ever want to be trapped in this thing. Now, you know, it's appropriate for some of these actions to block something like you can't do any more work on this document until you decide where you're going to save it. If you don't want to save it now, hit cancel, right? That's appropriate, but it should only block that document. That's why sheets were a nice innovation in reducing modality. Because previously, the open save dialog box would block the whole app, and now it was just linked to that one document. And so you could put it off to the side. Uh, preferences, getting back to, getting closer, back, coming back to iTunes things, preferences on OS X are not only supposed to be non-app modal, like you should be able to do other stuff on the application when the, that application's preferences dialog is on the screen, but ideally, they should also be live updating. I haven't looked at the human interface guidelines to see if they spell this out or actually recommend against it. But in practice, most of the Mac applications that I like and that are good, both from Apple and other uh, places, when possible, they make it so when you change a setting in preferences, 
if that setting changes something like visual in the application, you can see that change. So you can have the preferences window open and hit some checkbox that says like, you know, hide or show bookmarks bar or something in Safari. I don't know if this is actually a case where it's live updating. I haven't uh, done it in a while. Uh, but ideally, you shouldn't even have to, you know, open preferences, change settings and hit save or okay or whatever. And then those settings take place. You should be able to see them while you're fiddling with the preferences. Yes. And if you don't want to deal with the preferences, then fine. Don't click in a different window in the application. Preferences window is still open, but you can still use the rest of the application. Like you can open uh, Safari's preferences and then open a new browser window and browse for a while, then go back to the preferences window and stuff. Uh, I hope this is true. I'm just assuming because that seems like the way it should work. Uh, but that, no, I, I have the preferences window open right now. I'm able to go to different windows, do different things. And uh, no problem whatsoever. And there, there's a little, there's a little window, and I can command tilde around and get yeah. to it, change it, whatever I'd like. It is not app modal. It is not system modal. It is just a window, uh, like any other window, and you can put it, deal with it or not deal with it. Uh, and that's the way preferences are supposed to work. And the fact that iTunes preferences window is app modal, like that, is such a throwback to the the you know it, it highlights itunes origin as a classic mac os application which is one thing you'll be, young people might see when they look at that uh itunes through the ages yes it started out as a classic mac os application because mac os 10 didn't exist yet uh that was something that those applications would do all the time like you know pulling down menus is another big one that has more to do with preemptive versus cooperative multitasking but when you pull down a, a menu from the menu bar in classic mac os uh nothing else could happen on the system <laughs> the menu was down and you know everything would stop frozen yeah well they would they would try to you know okay everything stops except audio keeps playing everything stops except quick time keeps playing or whatever but it was incredibly limiting all those things they've been trying to get rid of and so having a preference dialog box in 2012 on you like a, what i would have to call a flagship application for apple the company given how it interacts with ios devices and and the itunes store and everything when you pull up the preferences dialog box the entire rest of the application is blocked makes no sense except once you realize that iTunes is an application originally developed for classic macOS that has been slowly changed over the years. Right? It, it's like a scarlet letter of user unfriendliness. That's why that's why this thing is important to me because like if I need if I want to know like have they finally turned the corner on iTunes? Is this like really an all new on iTunes? I just go to that preference dialog box and if it's still app modal, then pff, they haven't turned the corner. And so the the preferences dialog box on iTunes 11 still app modal. They have not turned the corner. Yeah, so the upshot on iTunes 11, performance and reliability have not been fixed. Whether they've got worse or not, certainly have not been fixed. The UI has not been rethought in light of, you know, what we currently use it with. They've, they've added to the UI and they've tweaked the UI, but it has not been rethought. They've added even more different hidden state for like, you know, what the up next list is attached to the thing and what you're searching and stuff like that. And the, the hidden sidebar by default and stuff, you know, and... Having figured out ways to do certain things with the old user interface, I now have to figure out how to do those same things with the new user interface. Uh, but, you know, that happens. You, you, I knew how to use this old one. It didn't make any sense, but I figured it out. And now I have a new one. I got to figure it out again. But there's no real benefit to figuring out the new one. Like, there's nothing good about the new program that makes it worthwhile for me to learn this new way of doing things, except for the fact that, like, look, you know, software update is going to keep insisting that I update it, so I better just bite the bullet and learn it. So... I give iTunes 11 a big thumbs down. It's nice that they're trying to do something with it. I'm not saying they had to keep the old one. I certainly didn't like the old one. I'm not going to say the old one was perfect. You shouldn't change it. I just, I want to see performance and reliability addressed. That's like my number one. And then rethink the UI. Don't just add to it and tweak it or fiddle. Maybe they think this is rethinking, but it's just not. It's, it's adding more confusion on top of the way I think, you know, even if you go like, okay, I won't, I won't show the sidebar. I'll try to use it the way I want. 
it's not enough of a rethinking. They didn't go far enough. Uh, they added too much cruft uh, on top of the stuff that was already there. So thumbs down. Boo. Yeah. Oh, and then the bugs, the bugs just drive me nuts. Like I mostly use the mini player and, and the mini player has this bug where every once in a while it will decide to show the album art and then draw like the previous track button right on top of the album art. When mini player is in the smallest, smallest mode, you can get it, you know, shrink it down as small as you can get it horizontally. So it's very, very small. Every once in a while, it's like, I would like to display the album art underneath the previous track button. It's just a bug. It's an ugly bug, but it's like, didn't these people ever, like, if you use the mini player for a single day, you will see that bug. And it's, it doesn't make me think this is, you know, high quality software. And I knew, like, when iTunes, they said it's going to come out and they didn't mention it again. And first, when they announced it and said it's going to be out in November, right away, I said, all right, that's, that's a, an application that's in trouble because they would like to have announced it shipping that day but they can't because it's not ready yet. And I immediately thought this is not going to be ready in November either. It's going to be buggy and it's going to be a mess. And here we have it. Uh, so they obviously didn't have enough time, right. enough time to do what they wanted or even enough time to get this thing nailed down. So I'm sad. One more sponsor. Shopify. This is the guys that we will use to sell your t-shirt. Their hosted e-commerce solution allows you to set up and run your own online store in just minutes, you pick a template or template, as you say. Add your products, you pick your payment processor, which could be, I use PayPal and Stripe. You could use just authorized on that. It's your choice. There's tons of pretty much any any processor that you like you can use. And then you just ship your stuff. It's easy to sell anything you want online. There's no software to download. There's nothing to host. There's nothing to maintain. You pick from over 100 professionally designed e-commerce templates. Or create your own. You can create your own HTML, CSS, full control. Make it look just like your own website or not. It's your choice. You never have bandwidth limits. You never have to worry about scaling. And uh, every store that they have is level one PCI DSS compliant. It's totally secure. All you need, John, is something to sell and we have it. We have something to sell. Visit shopify.com slash five by five. Listen to me. You must visit this URL or it does not help us. It does not help you. Shopify.com slash five by five gets you three months for free. Check them out today. You're up in Toronto, I think. Somewhere in Canada. Speaking of things to sell, did you hit the limit on the survey? Thing I hit the limit using? and I and I went back and I used my old my old friends Wufu, where I do all of our feedback forms and everything else. I went to my old friends at Wufu and I made a brand the same report, brand new report, now with no limits. Uh, because I, I have like a super deluxe professional account with Wufu. And I should have just made it there first. But you know what? I thought I would be kind. And I thought that I would use the same report uh, survey thing that you used when you did your journey survey. Uh, it worked well for me for journey. It was unlimited when I did it. Well, I don't know. Maybe they knew it was me and they limited it. But it was limited, apparently capped at 150 users. And we hit 100 uh, votes and we hit 150 almost immediately. Yeah, no, that's why. And so I went right. back over to Wufu and put it up on Wufu. And now I'm looking at, looking at the votes again. So if you are listening to this, go, go back and vote again. <laughs> well, you Your can first add, vote does not count. Well, you can add those votes into the total. No. All right. Well, I was just going to say you could make them check boxes instead of would radio you, buttons. Because some people in the chat room were saying they would buy but, two of them. But I'm not going to do two. I'm just right. going to do right. one. Right. If that, you're, that, if you're going to wrestle control away from, from what, you know, having to do, do one then I will just yeah, do one, one. One is fine. One is fine. Uh, some other people have said too. they want mugs. Would you, would you do a mug? 
Uh, yeah, same same list of graphics, probably, right? Okay, but I'm gonna do. I we we do one design though. That's all we're gonna do. Because yeah, it, it could be a different design for the shirt and the mug, if you you know whatever. See, for the mug, I would have your face, and underneath it, I would just have it say "like an animal." Hattie just laughed in the background, so that's a, yeah. that's a thumbs up. I don't know about that one. I'll tell you what: you pick the shirt, I'll pick the mug. May I we'll license? Uh, may I license your likeness and the hypercritical name? If you don't agree with what I'm doing, can I license it, and you'll just get a royalty? <laughs> I'm not doing anything. All right, we'll request. talk about this after. All right, all right, all right. All right, but right now, I just want a quick update. 47.37% want just hypercritical. 39.47% want Syracuse Avatar, plus there are many things wrong with this shirt. And the Syracuse Avatar plus hypercritical, as you anticipated, is a mere 13%, 190 votes reporting. That's like the Ralph Nader of this thing. It's a, who, who is it pulling votes from? <laughs> I think it's pronounced Nadir. All right, uh... Final, I guess, final thing. Final thing. Last Tim, topic Tim, ever. Tim Cook in the news. Not, not the last topic ever. That'll be, that'll be topic. <laughs> I like you almost let it go. No. <laughs> uh, this uh, this is also old news. I guess it's from a week ago or so. Uh, on the eleventh, yeah, that's what this link says. Tim Cook no. was interviewed Maybe on not. that. What was the name of that show? Rock, Rock Center. Rock Center. Ryan Williams, uh, which is an American TV program. And there was also a Business Week interview, which was a, a lot of the same ground cover, but it's a text version if you don't want to watch Brian Williams and a, and a video with some silly things in it. Uh, and I watched both these things and read the interview. The, the video interview has two parts. So I'll be in the show notes. And so first thing to say about Tim Cook being in the news is that it's not that Steve Jobs never did things like this because he did. He did publicity on like the, the, these same news shows and stuff. Like when a new product was announced, they'd have some little segment. They'd be talking to Steve Jobs in an Apple store and he'd be telling you how uh, this great new you know iPod is really important. Or he'd, maybe he'd be talking about the stores themselves and saying we're opening these stores. Like he would do news segments for the national news with these, these type of things. Uh, but in general... When he did stuff like that, he was acting as a spokesman for the company to talk about a new product. Like it was, it seemed like to me that it was more on on Apple's terms. Like we are using you, national media, to promote the product that we've just created, uh, and we'll talk to you for a couple of segments on camera or an interview to talk about this product or whatever. Especially a video, like because Steve Jobs would be, you could get quotes from him, maybe you know, if you're the Wall Street Journal and New York Times and stuff like that. Uh, but this one was more than like, cause Apple didn't have a product to announce. Like, yes, they had previous announcements that were close to the date, but it wasn't like this was a promotional campaign for the iPad mini or anything like that. This was more like, we're going to get to talk to Tim Cook that like personally, this guy, we're going, it's just, you know, Tim Cook's coming out party to the national media. Yeah. And this is not about Apple. This is about this guy. And we're going to talk to him. We're going to interview him. It wasn't a Barbara Walters interview where he tries to, you know, Barbara Walters tries to make Tim Cook cry. Right. It's not that, but it was just close. It was much closer to that than any Steve Jobs thing had come in like the modern, you know, Apple era. It's sure. People wanted to talk to Steve Jobs about stuff all the time. The closest we really got to that was like, the all things D things where he'd sit down and talk to uh, Walt Mossberg one on one, but even then he was still mostly talking about Apple. But this was like, well, let's learn about this Tim Cook fellow. What makes him tick? And of course, Tim <laughs> Cook was there to talk about. Uh, let's talk about the company Apple and stuff like that. But it was much, you know, much more of a personal interview uh, 
than uh, than expected. And it was not on Tim Cook's terms. It was almost as if you get the feeling that uh, this was something that either Apple or Tim Cook or both felt like they needed to do to help shore up Apple's image, address concerns about it. It was it was kind of a uh, a goodwill tour for Apple saying, you know, there may have been some bad things in the press recently about the map stuff. And in the past, we had stuff about the China labor stuff where he talked to the press again at that point. It was like not damage control, but there was a certain angle to it. It's like, okay, we'll give you access to this guy who is fairly private and you could talk to him for an extended period of time about whatever you want. Uh, And of course, he'll just try to turn it to Apple or whatever. And we'll use that opportunity to try to change some negative uh, images about us. And this, you know, this lets Tim Cook sort of start to better define his era. Same thing with the exec shuffle. Like when we had the show we were talking about the executive shuffle and getting rid of Forstall and Brout and stuff like that. Like here's Tim Cook defining his era. That was internally. Now here's the outward facing manifestation of that. Here I am, Tim Cook. I'm talking to you, the American people about Apple. I'm going to tell you what I think is great about us. I'm going to tell you that I'm going to say things like we screwed up on maps and be honest and upfront. Like it's like exchanging personal access uh, to to the the news media and what Apple gets out of it is an opportunity to sort of explain itself to the world. Which uh, this I think this used to happen more when Steve Jobs first came back and he had to say, "Look, Apple's not going out of business. Right. Let me tell you why." But nobody cared back then. They're <laughs> no. like, "Oh, some some the Steve Jobs guy wants to talk about Apple, whatever." But now, like, all eyes are on Apple, and it's a different you know a different environment. Uh, now, if you are listening to the show or following Apple news, there was nothing, almost nothing in these Tim Cook interviews that you didn't already know. Like we'd heard all this stuff before, both direct quotes from him and him on stage. But if you don't follow the Apple news, this is the first time you even knew that Tim Cook was the CEO of Apple when you saw it on, you know, your rock center show. And Brian Williams said, Oh, I didn't know that's who runs uh, Apple these days. Right. Uh, so it really, it's not talking to us. It's talking to the mass market. That doesn't already know these things. So it makes sense that Tim Cook is just going over the same territory. We've heard him go over before. Uh, but speaking of that territory, there's a few good links on that topic that came out fairly recently. One is from Michael Lopp, a.k.a. Rands, who has the Rands in Repose website. I thought you weren't supposed to reveal his true identity. You could Google for Rands. I know. I thought, you weren't, suppo- I thought you weren't supposed to reveal it. He's got a Wikipedia page for crying I out loud. It wasn't, I thought it was a secret. I'm just saying. It's not a secret. How can right. it be a secret if it's got a Wikipedia page? No, he's page. secret. It's very secretive. It's actually under Rands. If you do like Wikipedia. <laughs> his own he has a book out there, too. Yeah, he's Oh, it's not a secret. He's out. It was a secret at one time, I think. Uh, I don't remember when that changed. But anyway, uh, the title of this essay on his blog is called Innovation is a Fight. Uh, and it's addressing like the executive shuffle and uh, uh, his views on it. And here's an excerpt from the, the bottom. But he's talking about how, you know, how, you know, the title says, all oh, innovation is a fight. And he says, as someone who spends much of his time figuring out how to get teams to work together, the premium I'm placing on volatility might seem odd. I believe Apple benefits greatly from having a large, stable operational team that consistently and steadily gets a word that I can't say on the air done. But I also believe that in order to maintain its edge, Apple needs a group of disruptors. Love him or hate him, Scott's Forstall departure makes Apple Scott Forstall's departure makes Apple a more stable company. And I wonder if that's how it begins. It meaning like Apple's fall. Like so, he's saying like you need some sort of amount of internal conflict and disruption to continue innovating. And whether you like Scott Forstall or not, he surely was causing internal tension and conflict, you know, and that he's, uh, he's saying this as a, is a necessary component of innovation. Like you can't, you know, he says it might make for a more stable company. And when I read that, I thought of like the old saw that uh, stable, you know, in biology is a euphemism for dead. 
because anything that's stable, anything that's not changing might as well be dead. And that's the danger. Like, you know, how, what's going to bring Apple down? Is it going to be bad decisions or is it just going to be, you know, too much stability and, and conservatism? So by removing Forrestal, which was this wild card and this source of tension and, and, and drama and everything, perhaps that makes Apple weaker because you need some minimum amount of, uh, of tension inside the company uh, to get stuff done. And counterpoint to that is an article posted by Jason Snell just today uh, entitled, For Apple, Change Could Be a Good Sign. And he links to the Rands and Repose thing, uh, which he's providing counterpoint uh, to. And he says this about uh, after linking to that thing. He says, when I first heard word of Forstall's departure, the first thing I thought of was something Steve Jobs himself said. And he gives a quote from Steve Jobs' Stanford commencement address in 2005. It's this bit. Death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you. He's talking to the audience in the commencement address. But someday, not too long from now, you'll be gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be dramatic, but it's quite true. Mm. Uh, so Snell's take on it is that, you know, you know, things change. Uh, you can't, uh, another form of stability is keeping the same crew with the same tensions over a long period of time. And like, you know, even though it doesn't sound like stability because it's volatile and everything, it, oh, you know, not changing, being afraid to make that radical change in, in personnel is another way that uh, you can end up stagnating. And, you know, death is the, the single best invention of life saying you need something to come along and clear out the old. You know, Steve Jobs is kind of talking about himself there, saying like someday I'm going to die and someone else is going to, have to take over in the same way. You can't have the same executive team forever. Uh, it's good to have some kind of turnover. And, and you know, in this case, it wasn't death, but firing. But it's another form of uh, corporate death uh, that it's a single best invention of Apple's corporate life that they need to have some turnover. So uh, I'm not going to come down on one side or the other. I think both of these points are equally valid. And I think uh, I personally don't know enough about what's going on inside Apple to know what is this good or bad. I'm inclined to side with Jason overall, given the imperfect information, uh, because... I think Forstall's been there for a long time and played a significant role. And if the things I hear about him causing disruption internally are true, it would be difficult for me to imagine a radical internal change happening when he's still there and demanding to do exactly the same things that he wanted to do. Like if he wants to have his little kingdom and not collaborate and everything, like regardless of whether you think collaboration or having silos is the right thing to do, clearly Apple's been doing it one way for a long time. And I think it's good to try a different way. And if he was standing in the way of trying that different way, uh, then he needs to go. And that's what uh, Tim Cook said in his interview when asked about Forstall and Broward. He you know, deflected as usual and then said, I've always believed in collaboration. I wish I had a Tim Cook impression. I can't, I don't have one. No, I gotta work no one that. does yet. Yeah. Like he's, is he from Georgia or something? Or he's from the South. He's got a Southern accent, but it's very tamped down. Uh, but anyway, he says, you know, I've always believed in collaboration and it's not like a new thing for me. And, you know, we think this is going to help us. You know, the, the hint is like he was not a team player. He was not willing to collaborate or whatever. He didn't come out and say this, but this is the implication. Uh, and him saying it's not a new thing is kind of like saying, look, when I took over, I wanted everyone to collaborate. And I was already frustrated with the fact that these guys couldn't collaborate because they were fighting with each other. But I gave it a try, but they just couldn't work it out. And you know what? This is the last straw. And I said he has to go. So that's what it came down to. And that seems like a healthy dynamic to me that like. He was willing to, he was, wasn't immediately coming in and firing everybody and putting his stamp on everything because he's an egomaniac. But at the same time, he's like, look, I have a different philosophy about these things that Steve Jobs did. 
And the way I want things to work is more collaborative. And if this guy's getting in the way, then he's got to go. And then Browett, which he didn't address at all in the interview, which is kind of a shame. <laughs> the explanation of that would have been uh, good old Steve Jobs uh, explanation that we've heard on past shows. What can I say? I hired the wrong guy. Uh, yep, you did. And then you fired him, Tim. So I guess it's better than nothing. But next time, don't hire the wrong guy, maybe. Uh, uh, and the final, the only new piece of information, not really new, but like like criminology, or is that the thing where you're you're hanging on every word that uh, you have to read the read the papers and uh, what is criminology? Is that where you're looking at communications between people in Soviet Russia trying to figure out what's really going on based on these you know subtle moves that you see in these internal memos? That's I, a, I think that is. Hold on, let me. I'm opening it in Wikipedia. Okay, criminology is a study and analysis of the politics and policies of communist states and especially those of the Soviet Union. The term some overlap with Sovietology, which refers to the study of Soviet society as a whole. The term is named after the Kremlin, the seat of today's Russian and then Soviet government. Kremlinologists refer to academic media and commentary experts who specialize in the study of Kremlinology. Uh, it's sometimes used sweepingly to describe Western scholars who research issues of or specialize in Russian or Soviet law. Pizza Box got it in the chat room. People standing next to Stalin, where you'd see like who was standing next to Stalin and how in favor they were. And then like the next picture, they're four guys away. And you're like, oh, there must have been a falling out there like that. Criminology. Yeah. So we're seemingly insignificant details, but they're all we have to go on and then we hang on them. And so this one is, is one of those things. This is the one piece of, of significant information out of the interviews. When asked about television, uh, Tim Cook said, but we have an, this is an area of intent, quote, intense interest, unquote, for Apple. Uh, and why does that make a difference? Hasn't he said the same thing 50 times? Oh, but he used slightly different words this time. He said, this is an area we're looking into. This is an area that's important to us. Now they have intense interest, which is different than, you know, <laughs> that's that's why I was thinking of criminology. Because we're like, oh, but he said intense interest. That's totally different. And, you know, they are slowly, slowly ramping up the rhetoric on television of, of saying like, oh, we're kind of looking into it or we're, we're very interested in this area. And now the interest is intense, Then It's intense. <laughs> it's not just regular interest. And so... Uh, yeah, we don't know what they're going to do in TV, but they are not backing off on the rhetoric and they're not dropping it. They're in fact cranking it up. Still no actual information about what the heck they're going to do or anything like that. But, uh, there you have it. And I have in my notes to recap the TV thing, even though the the very first show we talked about television is fitting towards the end. We're going to talk about it again, but, uh, back in 2008 at the all things D conference, the D eight conference, uh, Steve jobs, in one of his rare extended interviews again with Walt Rothbard, and he took questions from the audience too. And some of the audience asked him about television and he gave an answer that basically said in, in a most, the most direct manner that you could possibly imagine Steve Jobs ever saying anything about future Apple products was that Apple does not want to make the omnivorous box that I wanted. Right. The omnivorous box would be a box that Apple would make that would sit in front of all the other crap you have in your house and sort of unify it. Like that box would figure out, okay, I'll figure out what kind of cable you have. And if you have a DVR and, and what premium channels you get, and if you have pay-per-view and like, I'll just unify it all together and I'll, you don't have to worry about all the ugly detail. I'll figure it all out and I'll provide you one beautiful, simplified Apple interface to your entire world. And we will do the super duper hard work to figure out all this crap. And yes, I know everyone has different cable services and everyone has different boxes and different DVRs and different televisions and different, they're subscribed to Netflix or not. Like we'll figure it out. That's the omnivorous box that I want. Like, competently made hardware, not like TiVo, uh, competently made software, again, not like TiVo, with a beautiful Apple interface that would make sense of the rat's nest of crap that's hanging off of my TV. But uh, but Steve Jobs said, no, we are not interested in making that box. It's a loser. You can't make money on it. It's like, you know, it's a sucker's bet. You can't actually be done competently. Uh, Google TV, 
Uh, Google said, on the other hand, we'll try to do that. And Google TV is trying to do this. They're trying to be the omnivorous box and mostly failing. Uh, so maybe Steve Jobs was right that that is a sucker's bet. And, you know, it seems tempting. Well, if we can make that thing, it would be beautiful. But really, that's not the way to do it. So uh, I know Steve Jobs isn't running the company anymore, but that was Apple's most clearly stated position on television. Like, we are not going to do that thing. Even though I want it, doesn't matter. Apple says, nope, we're not doing that. Uh, so if it's not going to be another layer, if it's not going to be another thing that you put in front of all the crap that's already there, it has to be something that replaces or removes or obviates the need for one or more of the other stupid layers that are uh, dealing with TV. And so that's what all, we've all been waiting for. Like he put that stake in the ground and we said, okay, well, it's not going to be that. So it's got to be like, take one of those things, existing things attached to your TV and make it so you don't need that anymore. Uh, and that's really hard to do due to the current business models, like the, the demands of content owners and the content owners have deals with the, the uh, various networks of where they, you know, are allowed their content to appear. And of course, the infrastructure owners like the cable companies that you, if you want to use our wires, you know, it's our rules and they have deals with the content owners but for packages and stuff like that. It's it, it's a, a big morass. And we're, so we're all waiting for Apple to break through that big tangle of crap with a compelling content deal or a compelling infrastructure deal or both. And it's not a technology problem. It is a business problem. And so that's why Tim Cook has mostly just been talking about this stuff because they have they ship the Apple TV and stuff like that. But the thing holding them back is not their inability to make some amazing new hardware device or anything like that. It's totally all those business deals, all the entrenched interests and all the things they own because cable companies, you know, have wires going to our houses and Apple doesn't. And, you know, the, the content owners have television shows that people want to watch and Apple doesn't because they don't make TV shows. And so how can Apple do anything in this area? They're not going to make the omnivorous boxes going to stand in front of those guys and they want to replace them or supplant them or wedge themselves into their business model and they don't like it. So we continue to wait. A hundred shows have gone by and no progress has been made in this area for the people who think that everything Apple, you know, there's nothing new from Apple. They made their phone, they made their tablet, uh, you know, they made a new operating system. There's nothing new that's going to come from Apple. This I don't know if this is going to be the last one, but this is surely the next one. And in 100 shows of Hypercritical, almost 100 shows, uh, it has not happened yet. So that's a shame. But it's an area of intense interest, and <laughs> I remain intensely interested. But you're on you're on board with this when they you you. It sounds like you're optimistic, uncharacteristically optimistic. Well, they, they keep cranking up their their public statements. Like why why keep you know that's not the Apple's way to you know like when. When the iPad was coming, they didn't hint for like three years. We're thinking we're really looking into tablets. We have an intense interest in in touchscreen devices bigger than an iPhone. Like they didn't do that. Everyone else thought they were going to make a tablet. Anytime you asked Apple about the tablet, they would say we don't comment on future products, right? But with the TV thing, it's like we're totally looking into that area. We're really interested in TV. Are you making something? Then they say, oh, we can't tell you anything about what we're making, but we're totally interested in TV. Yeah. You know, and that's weird. Which is, well, what's interesting is how this is so different from, you know, before the days of doing anything with iPhones, you know, they were very anti iPhones and then, oh, well, no one wants to read on, you know, all of the, all of the stuff that they used to say to whether that was what they believed. No, we know now that wasn't what they believed. It was in throwing them off the scent, like you were talking about. And, and now they're actually saying, yeah, we're, we're interested in this, but you wonder how far off are we from the real revolution in TV, because listen, you know that if, if I didn't believe, and I think you, you probably agree with me because I know how many podcasts you listen to, but I believe that this is the future of the way that people will consume their audio stuff. I believe it's podcasting. It's, it's certainly not somebody's going to turn on a radio and tune a dial 
That's not the future of anything. The future is people listening to the things that are interesting to them when they would like to listen to those things wherever they happen to be. That's, that's the future of the way people listen. And people will always listen to audio stuff because it's a wonderful secondary activity. You can listen while you're walking your dog or at the gym. You can listen to when your roommate is watching something on TV that's stupid. You can listen to while you're falling asleep, whatever, while you're working. And so people always listen to audio stuff and that's the future. But TV is the big thing. That's the big thing that's going to really change. What changed about radio? Not so much the delivery mechanism in, in the very physical sense and that we still have things that are plugged into a device that are plugged into our ears. Like that, that's pretty much been that way for since the Walkman. And that really isn't going to change that much. But how we listen to what we listen to has changed. What's next for the TV? We're all going to sit and look in front and look at some box. It's going to have a moving picture on it and some sound. Yes, we all DVR stuff and we get to watch it at different times. But it has to do with the delivery mechanism from whatever those people who create stuff to the people like us. Who, and if you think about how much content is independent that somebody like you, John, listens to, I think most of what you listen to is relatively independent content in that it comes from individuals or small companies like mine who make uh, audio stuff as opposed to you're not like going and downloading shows from NBC is my guess. You may be from like public radio, but not from well, universal. You know what I mean? That was the point I was going to make though. Like on the, even audio, we're in this transitional phase. It's uncomfortable. Like NPR is a great example because you're right. Like I, you know, even when I listen to NPR, it's not on the radio. I'm like, I'm downloading it as a podcast, but those NPR things could not exist if it weren't for the pledge drive that runs on the terrestrial radio that suckers who don't know about podcasts sit through on their way to home to work from work and get guilted into it. Like if it wasn't for the national unskippable, uh, you know, terrestrial radio broadcast of pledge drives and NPR, they couldn't afford to pay for the shows I like to listen to on my podcast. And so they're stuck halfway in between too. You know, they have, they don't have a new business model that supports them. They have the old one and then they have the new way. And you know, when all those people listen to terrestrial radio die, like who's going to, you know, are they going to have pledge drives on the podcast? You know, it's, it's weird. Yeah, I don't, I don't, but th that's the real, the real question is how do we change this? But when you think about that independent content, I don't think there's a lot of – I don't think there are a lot of channels for people making independent video content the way that there are for audio. I mean look at, look at iTunes as a really good example. I mean yeah, there are video podcasts but that's not what you and I are talking about. When we talk about TV, we talk about that cool show that we really like from whatever network is making it, getting that when we want it, the way we want it with an interface that we really love. And if all Apple did – was make a, a set-top box that I could take that piece of crap from Time Warner Cable and just get rid of that garbage. Do for TiVo what Apple, well, no, the Apple TiVo, like we talked about on one of our very first shows. An Apple TiVo would be pretty great if that's all it did. But they, they want to do more than that. And they should. But the yeah. companies don't want them to. Yeah, it's, it's, TV is even more entrenched than, than radio. Like, they have so many things stopping them, you know, even if it's just like you know, the, the purchasing of channels and packages is funding the creation of the shows we want. And like, what's even independent in the video where like Netflix making their own show with Kevin Spacey, like, right. Oh, are they independent? Well, no, Netflix is, it's not a network, I guess, but it's no more independent than HBO. And like, like I said, on, on show number one, the killer thing is that 
no solution from Apple is going to be viable for me personally and probably for a lot of people until it can reach some critical mass of shows I want. It doesn't matter if Netflix has that Kevin Spacey show. Do they have Game of Thrones? No. Do they have, you know, Boardwalk Empire? No. Well, I'm not going to sign on for anything that doesn't have those shows on it. And so it's like, okay, do I get this Apple thing in addition to this thing I'm already paying for? Well, it's like if I have to pick one so far and still cable has the most things that I want. So I pay this tremendous bill to get all these premium channels for cable, even though I don't watch 90% of it because they have the 10% that I want. And there's no way I'm going to replace my, you know, cable television subscription with something else that doesn't have the 10 shows that I want, even if it means giving up one show, like, you know, and that's the challenge Apple faces. You can't come in and say, all right, well, replace everything in your house with this awesome thing, whether it's an Apple television set or just a, a better Apple TV, uh, if they don't have the things that people want. And for other people, that's sports and stuff like local sports. You know, it's so hard to break through. And that's the that's the thing that makes me pessimistic. Like Apple keeps in, you know, saying intense interest and, and ramping up what they say. What could they possibly have hidden in their sleeves? It's some ma- major like, you know, Apple buys every major television network with its $100 billion that it has, you know. I don't see them coming out of this like the problem with the television thing is people keep thinking about it. They keep thinking about it in terms of like the iPhone. It's going to be some amazing hardware device or some amazing interface to television, like where you talk to it with Siri. That's not the problem. Like that would be great and all and cool. And maybe they have great ideas there. But even like a magical mind control television that doesn't get Game of Thrones is useless to me. Right. (laughs) You know, like you have to have the content. Uh, And Thus far, like what Steve Jobs said, I'm assuming this is still true. They don't want to just make awesome hardware that lets you interface with the content you already get in, in, in the same stupid way as you get it now. Right, exactly. They want to get rid of the stupidity. And that's a, that's a tall order. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I'll be ready for this revolution when it comes. Uh, I don't know if Apple is ready. This is, this is uh, the next big thing to watch for. But I think by the time it happens, the show will be over. So you won't get to hear me talk about it in Hypercritical. But... Uh, that's Apple's next big thing is what are you going to do with TV? And Tim Cook is kind of putting his reputation on the line by continuing to talk up the television thing. Because if that day comes and Apple says, this is what we were talking about. Totally guys like this television thing. This is what we meant. And people don't like it. That's all on Tim Cook. Right. You know, even if Steve Jobs like, Oh, we've cracked it, you know, in the, in the biography and everything, even if he was, he thought they had done it too. This is, this is, this next big thing is all on Tim. And so, I was going to say his presidency is riding on this, but it's not a presidency, but his presidency of Apple sort of is riding on this TV thing. Uh, we don't have any more sponsors, do we? No, I mean, I'm someone, unless there's someone you want to do. No, I, I have one final thing here, which is the Apple made in the USA thing with the Mac Pro. I figured it was worth talking about for a couple seconds. Yeah, I think it's a, um, uh, I think it's an important thing to mention because uh, it it's the only one that makes sense. And it's also like their lowest volume thing. So... Yeah, like that was the other other bit of information and, in you know, the Tim, like when you go on national news, you want to have something. And today I can reveal to you like it's the thing that he's bringing with him as like the, you know, the carrot for the things. I'll, I'll reveal some news that I never talked about before. Well, I'm here to announce that Apple is going to build, uh, you know, one of their lines of computers entirely in the U.S., which is, you know, friendly national media, rah, rah, don't build things in China, no labor disputes, bring jobs back to the United States, blah, 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 the whole nine yards. Right. And so Philip Elmer DeWitt had this article in Fortune which lays out a whole bunch of reasons uh, why, the, why it would be the Mac Pro. Uh, he's saying that, uh, you know, they, they said they're going to spend $100 million, and he's saying a $100 million factory puts out about a million units a year, and the only computer that Apple sells a paltry million units a year of is the Mac Pro. Uh, it's heavier, so shipping costs uh, you know, are more. It's easier to assemble because the pieces aren't as small. 
uh, if labor costs are more here, you can make that up with the fat margin that you get on a Mac Pro more than you could on a small one. All these reasons make sense. Uh, although our friend Phil Marlton makes the mistake of saying uh, Apple, through a spokesperson and through Tim Cook himself, uh, has already indicated that it will be producing a new Mac Pro in 2013. And as I've taken great pains to emphasize many times, he did not say he would be making a new Mac Pro in 13, 2013. He said he'd be making something that customers who are disappointed with the recent updates of the Mac Pro might like. Presumably, that's a new Mac Pro, but that is a presumption. Uh, so in the beginning, I was not on board with thinking that this made in the USA thing is going to be a Mac Pro because I'm thinking I, my thought was that they don't sell enough Mac Pros for that to be remotely worthwhile. Like if you're going to make something in the US, you got to make it something that actually sells in volume. Don't make it a Mac Pro. Uh, but looking at these numbers, assuming uh, Philip Elmer DeWitt is correct with these numbers, maybe maybe it does all fit. Uh, I don't care. I, for the record, I do not care where my replacement for Mac Pro is made. I only care that I can afford it and it does what I want. All right. I was going to try to leave room for you to ask a couple questions at the tail end. No, we don't have it. That's all right. All right. All right. The Wii U thing, I don't think the Wii U will take up an entire show. No, it it, it won't, but you try it and enjoy it. Enjoy it in good health. Yes, I will. And my my children will. I thank you, Dan, and my children thank you, even though they don't know they thank you. I'll be sure to tell them that Uncle Dan Benjamin got this right. One you day, be uncle, when, you can you can be something else if you want. Cousin uh, Dan Benjamin. <laughs> Cousin, no, I think uncle is acceptable. That's a very okay. endearing term. All right. Okay, so five by five TV slash hypercritical slash ninety eight is where you go to uh, get all the show notes for this. You can follow John on Twitter, Syracusa S I R A C U S A. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. He is also Syracusa on alpha.app.net, and he's also. Uh, just for you, Syracusa.tent.is. And uh, anyway, that's where you're going to go. And if you want, it's not still not too, it's never too late to rate the show. You can go and vote on which T-shirt you would like by uh, following the link that is now, I think, in the show notes. Uh, can I, can I uh, circle back? Can I circle back really quickly and, uh, and, and just give you an update on these shirts? And what the uh, sure go okay, for it. I have put this into the show notes. It is there. Uh, all right, let's look. I have done. You know, I have a report that's running here. And as as we have discussed many times in the past, immediately the surged of votes happening uh, right after I retweeted this and announced it. And uh, as soon, and then when I tweeted that, or mentioned on the show rather, that the uh, hypercritical shirt was winning, there was a surge in votes for the Avatar. Plus, there are many things wrong with this shirt. However, we now have a total of three hundred and sixty-four votes, forty-four point seven eight percent for just hypercritical, thirty-nine point eight four percent for the Syracuse Avatar. Plus, there are many things wrong with this shirt. So I and I predict that if we wait a week that these numbers will still be almost identical and that just hypercritical will win. Seems reasonable. All right. Well, anyway, that's it. So check to vote. You can get that link to vote five by five with you say hypercritical slash 98. And, uh, and that's it. So everybody have a, uh, have a good week. See you next Bye. week, John. Later.